This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. It's read by Phil Chenevere for LibriVox. It runs 1 hour 55 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper. This story was first published in Astounding Science Fiction, December 1958. The symphony was ending, the final triumphant pian soaring up and up and beyond the limit of audibility. For a moment, after the last notes had gone away, Paul sat motionless, as though some part of him had followed. Then he roused himself and finished his coffee and cigarette, looking out the wide window across the city below. Treetops and towers, roofs and domes, and arching skyways, busy swarms of air-cars glinting in the early sunlight. Not many people cared for Jao Coelho's music now, at least of all for the Eighth Symphony. It was the music of another time, a thousand years ago, when the Empire was blazing into being out of the long night and hammering back the neo-barbarians from world after world. Today people found it perturbing. He smiled faintly at the vacant chair opposite him and lit another cigarette before putting the breakfast dishes on the serving robot's tray, and, after a while, realized that the robot was still beside his chair, waiting for dismissal. He gave it an instruction to summon the cleaning robots and sent it away. He could as easily have summoned them himself, or let the guards who would be in checking the room do it for him, but maybe it made a robot feel trusted and important to relay orders to other robots. Then he smiled, this time in self-derision. <laughs> a robot couldn't feel important, or anything else. A robot was nothing but steel and plastic and magnetized tape and photo-micro-positronic circuits, whereas a man, His Imperial Majesty Paul XXII, for instance, was nothing but tissues and cells and colloids and electro-neutronic circuits. There was a difference. Anybody knew that. The trouble was that he had never met anybody which included physicists, biologists, psychologists, psionicists, philosophers, and theologians, who could define the difference in satisfactorily exact terms. He watched the robot pivot on its treads and glide away, trailing steam from its coffee pot. It might be silly to treat robots like people, but that wasn't as bad as treating people like robots, an attitude which was becoming entirely too prevalent. If only so many people didn't act like robots. He crossed to the elevator and stood in front of it, until a tiny electroencephalograph inside recognized his distinct brave wave pattern. Across the room another door was popping open in response to the robot's distinctive wave pattern. 
He stepped inside and flipped a switch. There were still a few things around that had to be manually operated, and the door closed behind him and the elevator gave him an instant weightlessness as it started to drop forty floors. When it opened, Captain General Dorflay of the Household Guard was waiting for him with a captain and ten privates. General Dorflay was human. The captain and his ten soldiers weren't. They wore helmets emblazoned with the golden sun and superimposed black cogwheel of the Empire, and red kilts and black ankle boots and weapons belts, and the captain had a narrow gold-laced cape over his shoulders, but for the rest their bodies were covered with a stiff mat of black hair, and their faces were slightly like terriers. For all his humanity, Captain General Dorfley's face was more like a bulldog's. They were hillmen from the southern hemisphere of Thor, and as a people they made excellent mercenaries. They were crack shots, brave and crafty fighters, totally uninterested in politics off their own planet, and because they had grown up in a patriarchal clan society, they were fanatically loyal to anybody whom they accepted as their chieftain. Paul stepped out and gave them an inclusive nod. "'Good morning, gentlemen.' "'Good morning, Your Imperial Majesty,' General Dorfley said, bowing the couple of inches consistent with military dignity. The Thoran captain saluted by touching his forehead, his heart, which was on the right side, and the butt of his pistol. Paul complimented him on the smart appearance of his detail, and the captain asked how it could be otherwise with the example and inspiration of his imperial majesty. Compliment and response could have been a playback from every morning of the ten years of his reign. So could Dorfley's question. Your majesty will proceed to his study? He wanted to say, No, to Nefelheim with it. Let's get an air car and fly a million miles somewhere. And watch the look of shocked incomprehension on the Captain General's face. He couldn't do that, though. Poor old Harv Dorfley might have had a heart attack. He nodded slowly. If you please, General. Dorfley nodded to the Thorin Captain, who nodded to his men. Four of them took two paces forward. The rest, unslinging weapons, went scurrying up the corridor some posting themselves along the way, and the rest continuing to the main hallway. The captain and two of his men started forward slowly. After they had gone twenty feet, Paul and General Dorfley fell in behind them, and the other two brought up the rear. "'Your Majesty,' Dorfley said in a low voice, "'let me beg you to be most cautious. I have just discovered that there exists a treasonous plot against your life.' Paul nodded. Dorfley was more than due to discover another treasonous plot. It had been ten days since the last one. I believe you mentioned it, General. Something about planting loose strontium-90 in the upholstery of the audience throne, wasn't it? And before that, somebody had been trying to smuggle a fusion bomb into the palace in a wine cask. And before that, it was a booby trap in the elevator. And before that... Somebody was planning to build a submachine gun into the view screen in the study, and— Oh, no, Your Majesty, that was—well, the persons involved in that plot became alarmed and fled the planet before I could arrest them. This is something different, Your Majesty. 
I have learned that unauthorized alterations have been made on one of the cooking robots in your private kitchen, and I am positive that the object is to poison your majesty. They were turning into the main hallway between the rows of portraits of past emperors, Paul and Roderick, Paul and Roderick, alternating over and over on both walls. He felt a smile growing in his face and banished it. "'The robot for the meat sauces, wasn't it?' he asked. "'Why, yes, Your Majesty.' "'I'm sorry, General. I should have warned you. Those alterations were made by roboticists from the Ministry of Security. They were installing an adaptation of a device used in the criminalistics lab to ensure more uniform measurements. They'd done that already for Prince Travon, the minister, and he'd recommended it to me.' That was a shame, spoiling poor Harv Dorfley's murder plot. It had been such a nice little plot, too. He must have had a lot of fun inventing it. But a line had to be drawn somewhere. Let him turn the palace upside down hunting for bombs, harass ladies-in-waiting whose lovers he suspected of being hired assassins, hound musicians into whose instruments he imagined firearms had been built. The Emperor's private kitchen would have to be off-limits. Dorflay, who should have been looking crestfallen but relieved, stopped short. Shocking breach of court etiquette, and was staring in horror. "'Your Majesty! Prince Travon did that openly and with your consent? But, Your Majesty, I am convinced that it is Prince Travon himself who is the instigator of every one of these diabolical schemes. In the case of the elevator I became suspicious of a man named Samuel Goner, one of Prince Travon's secret police agents. In the case of the gun in the viewscreen it was a technician whose sister is a member of the household of Countess Yearsy, Prince Travon's mistress. In the case of the fission bomb, the two Thorns and their captain had kept on for some distance before they had discovered that they were no longer being followed and were returning. He put his hand on General Dorfley's shoulder and urged him forward. Have you mentioned this to anybody? Not a word, Your Majesty. The court is so full of treachery that I can trust no one, and we must never warn the villain that he is suspected. Good. Say nothing to anybody. They had reached the door of the study now. I think I'll be here until noon. If I leave earlier, I'll flash you a signal. He entered the big oval room, lighted from overhead by the great star map in the ceiling, and crossed to his desk, with the view screens and reading screens and communication screens around it. And as he sat down, he cursed angrily, first at Harb Dorfley, and then, after a moment's reflection, at himself. He was the one to blame. He'd known Dorfley's paranoid condition for years. Have to do something about it. Any psychomedic could certify him. Be no problem at all to have him put away, but be blasted if he'd do that. That was no way to repay loyalty, even insane loyalty. Well, he'd find a way. He lit a cigarette and leaned back, looking up at the glowing swirl of billions of billions of tiny lights in the ceiling. At least there were supposed to be billions of billions of them. He never counted them, and neither had any of the seventeen Rodericks and sixteen Pauls before him who had sat under them. 
His hand moved to a control button on his chair arm, and a red patch roughly the shape of a pork chop appeared on the western side. That was the Empire. Every one of the thousand three hundred and sixty-five inhabited worlds, a trillion and a half intelligent beings, fourteen races, fifteen if you counted the Zarathustrian fuzzies who were almost able to qualify under the talk-and-build-a-fire rule, and that had been the Empire when Roderick the Sixth had seen the map completed, and when Paul the Second had built the palace, and when Stefan IV, the grandfather of Paul I, had proclaimed Odin the imperial planet, and Asgard the capital city. There had been some excuse for staying inside that patch of stars then. A newly won empire must be consolidated within before it can safely be expanded. But that had been over eight centuries ago. He looked at the daily schedule, beautifully embossed and neatly slipped under his desk glass, luncheon on the south upper terrace with the prime minister and the bench of imperial councillors. Yes, it was time for that again. That happened as inevitably and regularly as Harvdorf lays murder plots. And in the afternoon a plenary session, cabinet and councillors. Was he going to have to endure the bench of councillors twice in the same day? Ah, then the vexation was washed out of his face by a spreading grin. Bench of councillors. That was the answer. Elevate Harvdorf lay to the bench. That was what the bench was for. A gold-plated dustbin for the disposal of superannuated dignitaries. He'd do no harm there and a touch of outright lunacy might enliven and even improve the bench. And in the evening a banquet and a reception and ball, in honor of His Majesty Ronald the Fourteenth, planetary king of Dorindal, and first citizen, Zerth Yago, people's manager-in-chief of and for the planetary commonwealth of Aditya. Bargain Day! Two planetary chiefs of state in one big combination deal. He wondered what sort of prizes he had drawn this time, and closed his eyes, trying to remember. Dorindal, of course, was one of the sword worlds, settled by refugees from the losing side of the System States War, in the time of the old Terran Federation, who had reappeared in galactic history a few centuries later as the Space Vikings. They all had monarchical and rather picturesque governments. Dorindal, he seemed to recall, was a sort of quasi-feudalism. About Aditya he was less sure. Something unpleasant, he thought. The titles of the government and his head were suggestive. He lit another cigarette and snapped on the reading screen to see what they had piled onto him this morning, and then swore when a graph chart with jiggling red and blue and green lines appeared. Chart day two. Everything happens at once. It was the interstellar trade situation chart from economics. Red line for production, green line for exports, blue for imports, sectioned vertically for the ten viceroyalties, and subsectioned for the perfectitures. And, with the magnification and focus controls, he could even get data for individual planets. He didn't bother with that, and wondered why he bothered with the charts at all. The stuff was at least twenty days behind date, and not uniformly so, which accounted for much of the jiggling. 
It had been transmitted from planetary proconsulate to prefecture, and from prefecture to viceroyalty, and from there to Odin all by ship. A ship on hyperdrive could log light years an hour, but radio waves still had to travel 186,000 miles per second. The supplementary chart for the past five centuries told the real story. Three perfectly level and perfectly parallel lines. It was the same on all the other charts. Population fluctuating slightly at the moment, completely static for the past five centuries. A slight decrease in agriculture, matched by an increase in synthetic food production. A slight population movement toward the more urban planets and the more densely populated centers. A trend downward in employment, non-working population increasing by about .001% annually. Not that they were building better robots, they were just building them faster than they wore out. They all told the same story. A stable economy, a static population, a peaceful and undisturbed empire. Eight centuries, five at least, of historyless tranquility. Well, that was what everybody wanted, wasn't it? He flipped through the rest of the charts and began getting summarized ministry reports. Economics had denied a request from the mining cartel to authorize operations on a couple of uninhabited planets, danger of local market gluts and overstimulation of manufacturing. Permission granted to Robotics Cartel to request from planetary government of Durandal for increase of serial export quotas under consideration. They wouldn't want to turn that down while King Runolf was here. Impulsively, he punched out a combination on the communication screen and got Count Douglas, Minister of Economics. Count Douglas had thinning red hair and a plump, agreeable extrovert's face. He smiled and waited to be addressed. "'Sorry to bother your lordship,' Paul greeted him. "'What's the story on this export quota request from Durandal? We have their king here now. Think he's come to lobby for it?' Count Douglas chuckled. <laughs> "'He's not doing anything about it himself. Have you met him yet, sir?' "'Not yet. He's to be presented this evening.' "'Well, when you see him, I think the masculine pronoun is permissible. You'll see what I mean, sir. It's this Lord Koref, the marshal. He came here on business and had to bring the king along, for fear somebody else would grab him while he was gone. The whole object of Durandalian politics, as I understand it, is to get possession of the person of the king. Koref was on my screen for half an hour. I just got rid of him.' Planets pretty heavily agricultural. They had a couple of very good crop years in a row, and now they have grain running out their ears, and they want to export it and cash in. Well, can't let them do it, Your Majesty. They're not suffering any hardships. They're just not making as much money as they think they ought to. If they start dumping their surplus into interstellar trade, they'll cause all kinds of dislocations on other agricultural planets— at least that's what our computers all say. And that, of course, was gospel. He nodded. Why don't they turn their surplus into whiskey? Age it five or six years, and it'd be on the luxury goods schedule, and they could sell it anywhere. Count Douglas's eyes widened. I never thought of that, Your Majesty. Just a microsec. I want to make a note of that. 
pass it down to somebody who could deal with it. That's a wonderful idea, Your Majesty. He finally got the conversation to an end and went back to the reports. Security, as usual, had a few items above the dead level of bureaucratic procedure. The planetary king of Excalibur had been assassinated by his brother and two nephews, all three of whom were now fighting among themselves. As nobody had anything to fight with except small arms and a few light cannon, there would be no intervention. There had been intervention on Behemoth, however, when a whole continent had tried to secede from the Planetary Republic, and the Imperial Navy had been requested to send a task force. That was all right in both cases. No interference with anything that passed for a planetary government, but only one sovereignty on any planet with nuclear weapons, and only one supreme sovereignty in a galaxy with hyperdrive ships. And there had been rioting on Amaterasu because of the public indignation over a fraudulent election. He looked at that in incredulous delight. Why, here on Odin there hadn't been an election in the past six centuries that hadn't been utterly fraudulent. Nobody voted except the non-workers, whose votes were bought and sold wholesale by gangster bosses to pressure groups, and no decent person would be caught within a hundred yards of a polling place on an election day. He called the Minister of Security. Prince Travon was a man of his own age. They had been classmates at the university, but he looked older. His thin face was lined, and his hair was almost completely white. He was at his desk, with the sun and cogwheel of the Empire on the wall behind him, but on the breast of his black tunic he wore the badge of his family, a silver planet with three silver moons. Unlike Count Douglas, he didn't wait to be spoken to. "'Good morning, Your Majesty.' "'Good morning, Your Highness. Sorry to bother you.' "'I just caught an interesting item in your report. This business on Amaterasu. What sort of a planet is it politically? I don't seem to recall.' "'Why, they have a Republican government, sir. A very complicated setup. Really, it's a junk heap. When anything goes badly, they always build something new into the government, but they never abolish anything. They have a president, a premier, and an executive cabinet, and a tricameral legislature, and two complete and distinct judiciaries. The premier is always the presidential candidate getting the next highest number of votes. In the present instance, the president, who controls the planetary militia, is accusing the premier who controls the police, of fraud in the election of the middle house of the legislature. Each is supported by the judiciary he controls. Practically every citizen belongs either to the militia or the police auxiliaries. I am looking forward to further reports from Amaterasu, he added dryly. I dare say they'll be interesting. Send them to me in full, and red-star them, if you please, Prince Travon. He went back to the reports. The Ministry of Science and Technology had sent up a lengthy one. The only trouble with it was that everything reported was duplication of work that had been done centuries before. Well, no, a Dr. Dandrick of the Physics Department of the Imperial University here in Asgard, 
announced that a definite limit of accuracy in measuring the velocity of accelerated subnucleonic particles had been established 16.0675433 times light speed. That seemed to be typical. The frontiers of science now were all decimal points. The Ministry of Education had a little to offer. Historical scholarship was still active at least. He was reading about a new trove of source material that had come to light on Uller from the sixth-century atomic era when the door screen buzzed and flashed. He lit it, and his son Roderick appeared in it, with Snooks, the little red hound, squirming excitedly in the crown prince's arms. The dog began barking at once, and the boy called through the phone. "'Good morning, father. Are you busy?' "'Oh, not at all.' He pressed the release button. Come on in. Immediately the little hound leaped out of the princely arms and came dashing into the study and around the desk, jumping onto his lap. The boy followed more slowly, sitting down in the desk-side chair and drawing his foot up under him. Paul greeted Snooks first. People can wait, but for little dogs everything has to be right now and rummaged in a drawer until he found some wafers, holding one for Snooks to nibble. Then he became aware that his son was wearing leather shorts and tall buskins. "'Going out somewhere?' he asked a trifle enviously. "'Up in the mountains for a picnic. Olva's going along.' And his tutor and his esquire and Olva's companion lady and a dozen Thorin riflemen, of course, and they'd be in continuous screen contact with the palace. That ought to be a lot of fun. Did you get all your lessons done? Physics and math and galactiography, Roderick told him, and Professor Gulasan's going to give me and Olva our history after lunch. They talked about lessons and about the picnic. Of course, Snooks was going on the picnic, too. It was evident, though, that Roderick Roderick had something else on his mind. After a while he came out with it. "'Father, you know I've been a little afraid lately,' he said. "'Well, tell me about it, son. It isn't anything about you and Ova, is it?' Rod was fourteen. The little princess Ova, thirteen. They would be marriageable in six years. As far as anybody could tell, they were both quite happy about the marriage which had been arranged for them years ago. Oh, no, nothing like that. But Ova's sister and a couple of others of mother's ladies-in-waiting were to a psi-medium, and the medium told them that there were going to be changes. Great and frightening changes was what she said. She didn't specify. No, just that. Great and frightening changes. But the only change of that kind I can think of would be, well, something happening to you. Snooks, having eaten three wafers, was trying to lick his ear. He pushed the little dog back into his lap and pummeled him gently with his left hand. "'You mustn't let mediums gabble worry you, son. These psi-mediums have real powers, but they can't turn them off and on like a water-tap. When they don't get anything they don't like to admit it, and they invent things. Always generalities like that, never anything specific.' I know all that. The boy seemed offended, as though somebody were explaining that his mother hadn't really found him out in the rose garden. But they talked about it to some of their friends, and it seemed that other mediums are saying the same thing. Father, 
Do you remember when the Haval Valley reactor blew up? All over Odin the mediums had been talking about a terrible accident for a month before that happened. I remember that. Harv Dorfley believed that somebody had been falsely informed that the Emperor would visit the plant that day. These great and frightening changes will probably turn out to be a new fad in abstract sculpture. Any change frightens most people. They talked more about mediums, and then about air cars and air car racing, and about the Emperor's Cup race that was to be flown in a month. The communication screen began flashing and buzzing, and after he had silenced it with the busy button for the third time, Roderick said that it was time for him to go, came around to gather up snooks, and went out, saying that he'd be home in time for the banquet. The screen began to flash again as he went out. It was Prince Ganze, the Prime Minister. He looked as though he had a persistent low-level toothache, but that was his ordinary expression. "'Sorry to bother, Your Majesty. It's about these chiefs of state. Count Godvan, the Chamberlain, appealed to me, and I feel I should ask your advice. It's the matter of precedence.' "'Well, we have a fixed rule on that. Which one arrived first? "'Why, the Ation. But it seems King Rondolf insists that he's entitled to precedence, or rather his Lord Marshal does.' This Lord Koref insists that his king is not going to yield precedent to a commoner. Then he can go home to Dorindal. He felt himself growing angry. All the little angers of the morning were focusing on one spot. He forced the harshness out of his voice. At a court function somebody has to go first, and our rule is order of arrival at the palace. That rule was established to avoid violating the principle of equality to all civilized peoples and all planetary governments. We're not going to set it aside for the King of Durandal or anybody else. Prince Ganze nodded. Some of the toothache expression had gone out of his face now that he had been relieved of the decision. Of course, Your Majesty. He brightened a little. Do you think we might compromise, alternate the precedence, I mean? Only if this first citizen Yago consents. If he does, it would be a good idea. I'll talk to him, sir. The toothache expression came back. Uh, another thing, Your Majesty. They've both been invited to attend the plenary session this afternoon. Well, no trouble there. They can enter by different doors and sit in visitors' boxes at opposite ends of the hall. Uh, well, sir, I wasn't thinking of precedence, but this is to be an elective session, new members to replace Prince Havili of Defense, deceased, and Count Frosk of Science and Technology, elevated to the bench. Uh, there seems to be some difference of opinion among some of the ministers and counselors. It's very possible that the session may degenerate into an outright controversy. Horrible, Paul said seriously. I think, though, that our distinguished guests will see that the Empire can survive difference of opinion and even outright controversy. But if you think it might have a bad effect, why not postpone the election? Well, it's been postponed three times already, sir. Postpone it permanently. Advertise for bids on two robot ministers, defense and science and technology. If there are success, we can set up a project to design a robot emperor. 
the Prime Minister's face actually twitched and blanched at the blasphemy. "'Your Majesty is joking,' he said, as though he wanted to be reassured on the point. "'Unfortunately, I am. If my job could be robotized, maybe I could take my wife and son and our little dog and go fishing for a while.' But, of course, he couldn't. There were only two alternatives, the Empire or Galactic Anarchy. The galaxy was too big to hold general elections, and there had to be a supreme ruler and a positive and automatic, which meant hereditary, means of succession. "'Whose opinion seems to differ from whose, and about what?' he asked. "'Well, Count Douglas and Count Thompson want to have the Ministry of Science and Technology abolished.' and its functions and personnel distributed. Count Douglas means to take over the technological sections under economics, and Count Thompson will take over the science part under education. The proposal is going to be introduced at this session by Count Gilfred, the Minister of Health and Sanity. He hopes to get some of the bio- and psychoscience sections for his own ministry. That's right. Douglas gets the hide. Tom San gets the head and horns, and everybody who hunts with them gets a cut of the meat. That's good sound law of the chase. I'm not in favor of it myself. Prince Ganze, at this session I wish you'd get Captain General Dorfley nominated for the bench. I feel that it is about time to honor him with elevation. General Dorfley? But why, Your Majesty? Great galaxy, do you have to ask? Why, it's because the man's a raving lunatic. He oughtn't even to be trusted with a sidearm, let alone five companies of armed soldiers. Do you know what he told me this morning? That somebody is training a Nilhog swamp crawler to crawl up the octagon tower and bite you at breakfast, I suppose. But hasn't that been going on for quite a while, sir? It was a gimmick in one of the cooking robots, but that's aside from the question. He's finally named the mastermind behind all these nightmares of his, and who do you think it is? Yarn Travon. The Prime Minister's face grew graver than usual. Well, it was something to look grave about. Some of these days. Your Majesty, I couldn't possibly agree more about the General's mental condition. But I really should say that, crazy or not, he is not alone in his suspicions of Prince Stravon. If sharing them makes me a lunatic too, so be it. But share them I do. Paul felt his eyebrows lift in surprise. That's quite too much and too little, Prince Gonze, he said. Oh, with your permission I'll elaborate. Don't think that I suspect Prince Stravon of any childish prank with elevators or viewscreens or cooking robots, the Prime Minister hastened to disclaim. But I definitely do suspect him of treasonous ambitions. I suppose Your Majesty knows that he is the first Minister of Security in centuries who has assumed personal control of both the planetary and municipal police, instead of delegating his ex-officio powers. Your Majesty may not know, however, of some of the peculiar uses he has been making of those authorities. Does Your Majesty know 
that he has recruited the security guard up to at least ten times the strength needed to meet any conceivable peace-maintenance problem on this planet, and that he has been piling up huge quantities of heavy combat equipment, guns up to two hundred millimeter, heavy contragravity, even gun cutters and bomb and rocket boats. And does your majesty know that most of this armament is massed within fifteen minutes' flight time of this palace, or that Prince Travan has at his disposal from two and a half to three times in men and firepower the combined strength of the planetary militia and the imperial army on this planet? I know. It has my approval. He's trying to salvage some of the young non-workers through exposing them to military discipline. A good many of them, I believe, have gone off-planet on their discharge from the S.G. and hired as mercenaries, which is a far better profession than boat-selling. Quite a plausible explanation. Prince Travon is nothing if not plausible, the Prime Minister agreed. And does your Majesty know that— because of repeated demands for support from the Ministry of Security, the Imperial Navy has been scattered all over the Empire, and that there is not a naval craft bigger than a scout boat within fifteen hundred light years of Odin? That was absolutely true. Paul could only nod agreement. Prince Ganze continued. He has been doing some peculiar things as police chief of Asgard, too. For instance, there are two powerful non-workers voting block bosses, Big Moogie Blisco and Zico the Nose. I assure your majesty that I am not inventing these names. That's what the persons are actually called. Who have been enjoying the favor and support of Prince Travan, on a number of occasions their smaller rivals, leaders of less important gangs, have been arrested, often on trumped-up charges and held incommunicado until either Mugi or Zico could move into their territories and annex their non-worker followers. These two block bosses are subsidized, respectfully, by the steel and shipbuilding cartels and by the reaction products and chemical cartels, but actually they are controlled by Prince Travan. They in turn control between them about seventy per cent of the non-workers in Asgard. And you think this adds up to a plot against the throne? A plot to seize the throne, your majesty. Oh, come, Prince Anze, you're talking like Dorfle. Hear me out, your majesty. His imperial highness is fourteen years old. It will be eleven years before he will be legally able to assume the powers of emperor. In the dreadful event of your immediate death, it would mean a regency for that long. Of course, your ministers and counselors would be the ones to name the regent, but I know how they would vote with security bayonets at their throats, and regency might not be the limit of Prince Travon's ambitions. In your own words, quite plausible, Prince Gansay. It rests, however, on a very questionable foundation. The assumption that Prince Stravon is stupid enough to want the throne. 
he had to terminate the conversation himself and blank the screen. Victor Gonze was still staring at him in shocked incredulity when his image vanished. Victor Gonze could not imagine anybody not wanting the throne, not even the man who had to sit on it. He sat for a while looking at the darkened screen, a little worried. Victor Gonze had a much better intelligence service than he had believed. He wondered how much Gonze had found out that he hadn't mentioned. Then he went back to the reports. He had gotten down to the Ministry of Fine Arts when the communications screen began calling attention to itself again. When he flipped the switch, a woman smiled out of it at him. Her blonde hair was rumpled, and she wore a dressing gown. Her smile brightened as his face appeared in her screen. Hi, she greeted him. Hi yourself. You just get up? She raised a hand to cover a yawn. I'll bet you've been up raining for hours. Were Rod and Snooks in to see you yet? He nodded. They just left. Rod's going on a picnic with Olva in the mountains. How long had it been since he and Morris had been on a picnic, a real picnic, with less than fifty guards and as many courtiers along? Do you have much raining to do this afternoon? She grimaced. <laughs> Flower festivals. I have to make personal tri-D appearances live with messages for the loving subjects. Three minutes on and a two-minute break between. I have forty this afternoon. Ugh, well, have a good time, sweetheart. All I have is lunch with the bench and then this plenary session. He told her about Gonze's fear of outright controversy. Oh, fun! Maybe somebody'll pull somebody's whiskers or something. I'm in on that, too. The call indicator in front of him began glowing with the code symbol of the Minister of Security. We can always hope, can't we? Well, Yarn Travon's trying to get me now. Don't keep him waiting. Maybe I can see you before the session. She made a kissing motion with her lips at him and blanked the screen. He flipped the switch again, and Prince Travon was on the screen. The security minister didn't waste time being sorry to bother him. Your Majesty, a report's just come in that there's a serious riot at the university. Between five and ten thousand students are attacking the administration center, lobbing stench bombs into it and threatening to hang Chancellor Kane. They have already overwhelmed and disarmed the campus police, and I've sent two companies of the Gendarme Riot Brigade under an officer I can trust to handle things firmly but intelligently. We don't want any indiscriminate stunning or tear-gassing or shooting. All sorts of people can have sons and daughters mixed up in a student riot. Yes, I seem to recall student riots in which the sons of His Late Highness Prince Travan and His Late Majesty Roderick Twenty Second were involved. He deliberated the point for a moment and added, this scarcely sounds like a frat-fight or a panty-raid, though. What seems to have triggered it? The story I got, a rather hysterical call for help from Kane himself, is that they're protesting an action of his and dismissing a faculty member. 
I have a couple of undercovers at the university, and I'm trying to contact them. I sent more undercovers who could pass for students ahead of the gendarmes to get the students' side of it and the names of the ringleaders. He glanced down at the indicator in front of him, which had begun to glow. If you'll pardon me, sir, Count Thompson's trying to get me. He may have particulars. I'll call your majesty back when I learn anything more. There hadn't been anything like that at the university within the memory of the oldest grad. Chancellor Kane, he knew, was a stupid and arrogant old windbag with a swollen sense of his own importance. He made a small bet with himself that the whole thing was Kane's fault, but he wondered what lay behind it and what would come out of it. Great plagues from little microbes start. Great and frightening changes. The screen got itself into an uproar, and he flipped the switch. It was Victor Ganze again. He looked as though his permanent toothache had deserted him for the moment. "'Sorry to bother your majesty, but it's all fixed up,' he reported. First citizen Iago agreed to alternate in precedence with King Ronulf, and Lord Koref has withdrawn all his objections. As far as I can see at present there should be no trouble.' Fine. I suppose you heard about the excitement at the university? Oh, yes, Your Majesty. Disgraceful affair. Simply shocking. What seems to have started it, have you heard? he asked. All I know is that the students were protesting the dismissal of a faculty member. He must have been exceptionally popular, or else he got a more than ordinary raw deal from Cain. "'Well, as to that, sir, I can't say. Um, all I learned was that it was the result of some faculty squabble in one of the science departments. The grounds for the dismissal were insubordination and contempt for authority. I always thought that when authority began inspiring contempt it had stopped being authority. Did you say science? This isn't going to help Douglas and Thompson any.' "'I'm afraid not, Your Majesty.' Ganze didn't look particularly regretful. "'The news cartel's gotten hold of it and are using it. It'll be all over the Empire.' He said that as though it meant something. Well, maybe it did. A lot of ministers and almost all the counselors spent most of their time worrying about what people on planets like Chirmosh and Zarathustra and Deidre and Quetzalcoatl might think. In ignorance of the fact that Interest in empire politics varied inversely as the squared of the distance to Odin and the level of corruption and inefficiency of the local government. I notice you'll be at the bench luncheon. Do you think you could invite our guests, too? We could have an informal presentation before it starts. Can do? Good. I'll be seeing you there. When the screen was blanked, he returned to the reports, ran them off hastily to make sure that nothing had been red-starred, and called a robot to clear the projector. After a while Prince Trevon called again. "'Sorry to bother, Your Majesty, but I have most of the facts on the riot now. What happened was that Chancellor Kane sacked a professor of physics department under circumstances which aroused resentment among the science students. Some of them walked out of class and went to the stadium to hold a protest meeting, 
and the thing snowballed until half the students were in it. Kane lost his head and ordered the campus police to clear the stadium. The students rushed them and swamped them. I hope for their sakes that none of my men ever let anything like that happen. The man I sent, a Colonel Handersan, managed to talk the students into going back to the stadium and continuing the meeting under gendarme protection. Sounds like a good man. Very good, Your Majesty, especially in handling disturbances. I have complete confidence in him. He's also investigating the background of the affair. I'll give Your Majesty what he's learned to date. It seems that the head of the physics department, a Professor Nelsie Dundrick, had been conducting an experiment assisted by Professor Clint Ferres to establish more accurately the velocity of subnucleonic particles, uh, beta micropositos, I believe. Dandrick's story, as related to Handrasan by Kane, is that he reached a limit and the apparatus began giving erratic results. Prince Travon stopped to light a cigarette. At this point, Professor Dandrick ordered the experiment stopped, and Professor Farris insisted on continuing. When Dandrick ordered the apparatus dismantled, Ferris became rather emotional about it, obscenely abusive and threatening, according to Dandrick. Dandrick complained to Kane. Kane ordered Ferris to apologize. Ferris refused, and Kane dismissed Ferris. Immediately the students went on strike. Ferris confirmed the whole story, and he added one small detail that Dandrick hadn't seen fit to mention. According to him, when these micropositos were accelerated beyond sixteen and a fraction times light speed, they began registering at the target before the source registered the emission. Yes, I— What did you say? Prince Travan repeated it slowly, distinctly, and tonelessly. That was what I thought you said. Well— I'm going to insist on a complete investigation, including a repetition of the experiment, under direction of Professor Ferris. Yes, Your Majesty, and when that happens I mean to be on hand personally. If somebody is just before discovering time travel, I think security has a very substantial interest in it. The Prime Minister called back to confirm that First Citizen Iago and King Ranulf would be at the luncheon. The Chamberlain, Count Godvan, called with a long and dreary problem about the protocol for the banquet. Finally at noon he flashed a signal for General Dorfley, waited five minutes, and then left his desk and went out, to find the mad general and his wire-haired soldiers drawn up in the hall. There were more Thorns on the south upper terrace, and after a flurry of porting and presenting and ordering arms and hand-saluting, the Prime Minister advanced and escorted him to where the bench of councillors, all thirty of them, total age close to twenty-eight hundred years, were drawn up in a rough crescent behind the three distinguished guests. The King of Durandal wore a cloth of silver leotard and pink tights and a belt of gold links, on which he carried a jeweled dagger, only slightly thicker than a knitting needle. He was slender and willowy, and he had large and soulful eyes, and the royal beautician must have worked on him for a couple of hours. 
Wait till Mara sees this. Oh, brother! Koref, the Lord Marshal, wore what was probably the standard costume of Durandal, a fairly long jerkin with short sleeves and knee-boots, and his dress-dagger looked as though it had been designed for use. Lord Koref looked as though he would be quite willing and able to use it. He was fleshy and full-faced, with hard muscles under the flesh. First Citizen Yago, People's Manager-in-Chief of and for the Planetary Commonwealth of Aditya, wore a one-piece white garment like a mechanic's coveralls, with the emblem of his government and the numeral one on his breast. He carried no dagger. If he had worn a dress weapon it would probably have been a slide rule. His head was completely shaven, and he had small pale eyes and a rat-trap mouth. He was regarding the Durandalians with a distaste that was all too evidently reciprocated. King Ranulf appeared to have won the toss for first presentation. He squeezed the imperial hand in both of his and looked up adoringly as he professed his deep honor and pleasure. Yago merely clasped both his hands in front of the emblem on his chest and raised them quickly to the level of his chin, saying, "'At the service of the imperial state,' and adding, as though it hurt him, "'Your imperial majesty.' Not being a chief of state, Lord Koref came third. He merely shook hands and said, "'A great honor, your imperial majesty.' and the thanks, both of myself and my royal master, for a most gracious reception. The attempt to grab first place having failed, he was more than willing to forget the whole subject. There was a chance that finding a way to dispose of the grain surplus might make the difference between his staying in power at home or not. Fortunately, the three guests had already met the bench of counselors. Immediately after the presentation of Lord Koref they all started the two hundred yards march to the luncheon pavilion, the King of Dorindal clinging to his left arm, and First Citizen Yago stumping dourly on his right, with Prince Ganze beyond him and Lord Koref on Ranulf's left. "'Do you plan to stay long on Odin?' he asked the King. Oh, I'd love to stay for simply months. Everything is so wonderful here in Asgard. It makes our little capital of Roncevaux seem so utterly provincial. I'm going to tell Your Majesty a secret. <laughs> I'm going to see if I can lure some of your wonderful ballet dancers back to Durandal with me. Aren't I a naughty, raiding Your Imperial Majesty's theaters? "'In keeping with the traditions of your people,' he replied gravely. "'You sword-worlders used to raid everywhere you went. "'I'm afraid those bad old days are long past, your imperial majesty,' Lord Koref said. "'But we sword-worlders got around the galaxy for a while. "'In fact, I seem to remember reading that some of our brethren from Morglay or Flamberge "'even occupied Aditya for a couple of centuries. "'Not that you'd guess to look at Aditya now.' "'It was First Citizen Yago's turn to take precedence, "'the seat on the right of the throne chair. "'Lord Koref sat on Ranulf's left, 
and to balance him Prince Ganze sat beyond Yago and dutifully began inquiring of the people's manager-in-chief about the structure of his government, launching him on a monologue that promised to last at least half the luncheon. That left the King of Durandal to Paul. For a start he dropped a compliment on the cloth of silver leotard. King Ranulf laughed dulcetly, brushed the garment with his fingertips, and said that it was just a simple thing patterned after the Durandalian peasant costume. "'You have peasants on Durandal?' "'Oh, dear, yes! Such quaint, charming people! Of course they're all poor, and they wear such funny, ragged clothes, and travel about in rackety old air-cars. It's a wonder they don't fall apart of the air.' But they're so wonderfully happy and carefree. I often wish I were one of them instead of king. Non-working class, your imperial majesty, Lord Karef explained. On Aditya, first citizen Yago declared, there are no classes, and on Aditya everybody works, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. On Aditya... An elderly councillor four places to the right of him said loudly to his neighbor, "'They don't call them classes. They call them sociological categories, and they have nineteen of them. And on Aditya they don't call them non-workers. They call them occupational reservists, and they have more of them than we do.' "'But, of course, I was born a king,' Ranulf said sadly and nobly. "'I have a duty to my people.' "'No, they don't vote at all,' Lord Koraf was telling the councillor on his left. "'On Durandal you have to pay taxes before you can vote. "'On Aditya the crime of taxation does not exist,' the first citizen told the Prime Minister. "'On Aditya the councillor four places down said to his neighbour, "'There's nothing to tax.' The state owns all the property, and if the imperial constitution and the space navy left them, the state would own all the people, too. Don't tell me about Aditya. First big ship command I had was the old Invictus 374, and she was based on Aditya for four years, <laughs> and I'd sooner have spent that time in orbit around Niflheim. Now Paul remembered who he was. Old Admiral, now Prince Counselor, Gocklor. He and Prince Counselor Dorflay would get along famously. The Lord Marshal of Durandal was replying to some objections somebody had made. No, nothing of the sort. We hold of you that every civil or political right implies a civil or political obligation. The citizen has a right to protection from the realm, for instance. He, therefore, has the obligation to defend the realm, and his right to participate in the government of the realm includes his obligation to support the realm financially. Well, we tax only property. If a non-worker acquires taxable property, he has to go to work to earn the taxes. I might add that our non-workers are very careful to avoid acquiring taxable property. "'But if they don't have votes to sell, what do they live on?' a councillor asked in bewilderment. "'The nobility supports them. The landowners, the trading barons, the industrial lords. 
The more non-working adherents they have, the greater their prestige. And the more rifles they could muster when they quarrel with their fellow nobles, of course. Besides, if we didn't do that, they turned brigand, and it costs less to support them than to have to hunt them out of the brush and hang them. On Aditya, brigandage does not exist. On Aditya, all the brigands belong to the secret police. Only on Aditya they don't call them secret police. They call them servants of the people, ninth category. A shadow passed quickly over the pavilion, and then another. He glanced up quickly to see two long black troop carriers, emblazoned with the sun and cogwheel and armored fist of security, pass back of the octagon tower and let down on the north landing stage. A third followed. He rose quickly. Please remain seated, gentlemen, and continue with the luncheon. If you will excuse me for a moment, I'll be back directly. I hope, he added mentally. Captain General Dorfley, surrounded by a dozen officers, Thorin and human, had arrived on the lower terrace at the base of the octagon tower. They had a full Thorin rifle company with them. As he went down to them, Dorfley hurried forward. "'It has come, Your Majesty,' he said as soon as he could make himself heard without raising his voice. "'We are all ready to die with Your Majesty.' "'Oh, I doubt it'll come to that, Harv,' he said. "'But just to be on the safe side, take that company and the gentlemen who are with you, and get up to the mountains, and join the Crown Prince and his party. Here.' He took a notepad from his belt pouch and wrote rapidly, sealing the note and giving it to Dorfley. "'Give this to His Highness, and place yourself under his orders. I know he's just a boy, but he has a good head.' Obey him exactly in everything, but under no circumstances return to the palace or allow him to return until I call you. Your Majesty is ordering me away? The old soldier was aghast. An emperor who has a son can be spared. An emperor's son who is too young to marry can't. You know that. Harvdorfle was only mad on one subject and even within the frame of his madness he was intensely logical. He nodded. "'Yes, Your Majesty. We both serve the Empire as best we can, and I will guard the little Princess Olva, too.' He grasped Paul's hand and said, "'Farewell, Your Majesty,' and dashed away, gathering his staff and the company of Thorans as he went. In an instant they had vanished down the nearest rampway. The Emperor watched their departure, and at the same time saw a big black aircar, bearing the three-mooned planet Argent on Sable, of Travan, let down onto the south landing stage, and another troop carrier let down after it. Four men left the aircar. Yarn, Prince Travan, and three officers in the black of the security guard. Prince Gonze had also left the table. He came from one direction as Prince Stravon advanced from the other. They converged on the Emperor. "'What's happening here, Prince Stravon?' Prince Gonze demanded. "'Why are you bringing all these troops to the palace?' "'Your Majesty,' Prince Stravon said smoothly, "'I trust that you will pardon this disturbance. I'm sure nothing serious will happen, but I didn't dare take chances.' 
The students from the university are marching on the palace, perfectly peaceful and loyal procession. They're bringing a petition for your majesty, but on the way, while passing through a non-worker's district, they were attacked by a gang of hooligans connected with a voting block boss called Nutchi the Knife. None of the students were hurt, and Colonel Henderson got the procession out of the district promptly, and then dropped some of his men, who have since been reinforced, to deal with the hooligans. That's still going on, and these riots are like forest fires. You never know when they'll shift and get out of control. I hope the men I brought won't be needed here. Really, they're a reserve for the riot work. I won't commit them, though, until I'm sure the palace is safe." He nodded. "'Prince Travon, how soon do you estimate that the student procession will arrive here?' he asked. "'They're coming on foot, Your Majesty. I give them an hour, at least.' "'Well, Prince Travon, will you have one of your officers see that the public address screen in front is ready? I want to talk to them when they arrive.' And meanwhile, I'll want to talk to Chancellor Kane, Professor Dandrick, Professor Fares, and Colonel Henderson together. And Count Thompson, too. Prince Ganze, will you please screen him and invite him here immediately? Now, Your Majesty? At first, the Prime Minister was trying to suppress a look of incredulity. Then he was trying to keep from showing comprehension. Yes, Your Majesty, at once. He frowned slightly when he saw two of the security guard officers salute Prince Trevon instead of the Emperor before going away. Then he turned and hurried toward the Octagon Tower. The officer who had gone to the air car to use the radio returned, and reported that Colonel Hondrasan was bringing the Chancellor and both professors from the university in his command car, having anticipated that they would be wanted. Paul nodded in pleasure. "'You have a good man there, Prince,' he said. "'Keep an eye on him.' "'I know it, Your Majesty. To tell the truth, it was he who organized this march. I thought they'd be better employed coming here to petition you than milling around the university getting into further mischief.' The other officer also returned, bringing a portable viewscreen with him on a contragravity lifter. By this time, the bench of counselors and the three off-planet guests had become anxious and left the luncheon pavilion in a body. The counselors were looking about uneasily, noticing the black-uniformed security guards who had left the troop carrier and were taking positions by squads all around the Emperor. First Citizen Yago and King Ranulf and Lord Koref also seemed uneasy. They were avoiding the proximity of Paul as though he had the green death. The viewscreen came on, and in it the city, as seen from an air car at two thousand feet, spread out with the palace visible in the distance, the golden pile of the octagon tower jutting up from it. The car carrying the pickup was behind the procession which was moving toward the palace along one of the broad skyways with gendarmes and security guards leading, following, and flanking. There were a few imperial and planetary and school flags, but none of the quantity-made banners and placards which always betray a planned demonstration. Prince Gonze had been gone for some time now. When he returned, he drew Paul aside. "'Your Majesty,' he whispered softly, 
I tried to summon army troops, but it'll be hours before any can get here, and the militia can't be mobilized in anything less than a day. There are only five thousand army regulars on Odin now, anyhow. And half of them officers and noncoms of skeleton regiments. Like the Navy, the army had been scattered all over the Empire, on Behemoth and Amida and Zepeptetek and Astari and Jontoheim, in response to calls for support from security. "'Let's have a look at this rioting, Prince Stravan,' one of the less decrepit counselors, a retired general, said. "'I want to see how your people are handling it.' The officers who had come with Prince Travan consulted briefly, and then got another pickup on the screen. This must have been a regular public pickup on the front of a tall building. It was a couple of miles farther away. The palace was visible only as a tiny glint from the octagon tower on the skyline. Half a dozen security air cars were darting about, two of them chasing a battered civilian vehicle and firing at it. On rooftops and terraces and skyways little clumps of security guards were skirmishing, dodging from cover to cover, and sometimes individuals or groups in civilian clothes fired back at them. There was a surprising absence of casualties. "'Your Majesty!' the old general hissed in a scandalized whisper. "'That's nothing but a big fake. Look, they're all firing blanks.' The rifles hardly kick at all, and there's too much smoke for propellant powder. I noticed that. This riot must have been carefully prepared long in advance. Yet the student riot seemed to have been entirely spontaneous. That puzzled him. He wished he knew just what Yorn Travan was up to. Just keep quiet about it, he advised. More air cars were arriving big and luxurious, emblazoned with the arms of some of the most distinguished families in Asgard. One of the first to let down bore the device of Douglas, and from it the Minister of Economics, the Minister of Education, and a couple of other ministers alighted. Count Douglas went at once to Prince Travan, drawing him away from King Ranulf and Lord Koref, and talking to him rapidly and earnestly. Count Thompson approached at a swift half-run. "'Save your majesty,' he greeted breathlessly. "'What's going on, sir? We heard something about some petty brawl at the university that Prince Ganze had become alarmed about, but now there seemed to be fighting all over the city. I never saw anything like it. On the way here we had to go up to ten thousand feet to get over a battle, and there's a vast crowd on the Avenue of the Arts, and—' He looked at the security guards— "'Your Majesty, just what is going on?' "'Great and frightening changes,' Count Thompson started. "'He must have been to a sigh medium, too. "'But I think the Empire is going to survive them. "'There may even be a few improvements before things are done.' A blue-uniformed gendarme officer approached Prince Travan, drawing him away from Count Douglas and speaking briefly to him. The Minister of Security nodded, then turned back to the Minister of Economics. They talked for a few moments longer, then clasped hands, and Travon left Douglas with his face wreathed in smiles. The gendarme officer accompanied him as he approached. 
Your Majesty, this is Colonel Handerson, the officer who handled the affair at the university. And a very good piece of work, Colonel. He shook hands with him. Don't be surprised if it's remembered next Honors Day. Did you bring Kane and the two professors? They're down on the lower landing stage, Your Majesty. We're delaying the students to give Your Majesty time to talk to them. We'll see them now. My study will do. The officer saluted and went away. He turned to Count Tamsan. That's why I asked Prince Gunze to invite you here. This thing's become too public to be ignored. Some sort of action will have to be taken. I'm going to talk to the students. I want to find out just what happened before I commit myself to anything. Well, gentlemen, let's go to my study. Count Tamsan looked around, bewildered. But I don't understand. He fell into step with Paul and the Minister of Security. A squad of security guards fell in behind them. I don't understand what's happening, he complained. An emperor about to have his throne yanked out from under him, and a minister about to stage a coup d'etat, taking time out to settle a trifling academic squabble. One thing he did understand, though, was that the Ministry of Education was getting some very bad publicity at a time when it could be least afforded. Prince Travon was telling him about the hooligans' attack on the marching students, and that worried him even more. Non-working hooligans acted as voting-block bosses ordered. Voting-block bosses acted on orders from the political manipulators of cartels and pressure groups, and action downward through the non-workers was usually accompanied by action upward through influences to which ministers were sensitive. There were a dozen security guards in black tunics, and as many household thorns in red kilts in the hall outside the study, fraternizing amicably. They hurried apart and formed two ranks, and the thorn officer with them saluted. Going into the study, he went to his desk. Count Tomson lit a cigarette and puffed nervously, and sat down as though he were afraid the chair would collapse under him. Prince Travon sank into another chair and relaxed, closing his eyes. There was a bit of wafer on the floor by Paul's chair, dropped by the little dog that morning. He stooped and picked it up, laying it on his desk, and sat looking at it until the door screen flashed and buzzed. Then he pressed the release button. Colonel Hondrasan ushered the three university men in ahead of him. Kane, with a florid, arrogant face that showed worry under the arrogance. Dandrick, gray-haired and stoop-shouldered, looking irritated. Fares, young, with a scrubby red mustache, looking bellicose. He greeted them collectively and invited them to sit, and there was a brief uncomfortable silence which everyone expected him to break. "'Well, gentlemen,' he said, we want to get the facts about this affair in some kind of order. I wish you'd tell me, as briefly and as completely as possible, what you know about it. There's the man who started it, Kane declared, pointing at Forres. Professor Forres had nothing to do with it, Colonel Henderson stated flatly. He and his wife were in the apartment packing to move out when it started. Somebody called him and told him about the fighting at the stadium, and he went there at once to talk his students into dispersing. 
By that time the situation was completely out of hand. He could do nothing with the students. Well, I think we ought to find out, first of all, why Professor Ferres was dismissed, Prince Travon said. It will take a good deal to convince me that any teacher able to inspire such loyalty in his students is a bad teacher or deserves dismissal. As I understand, Paul said, the dismissal was the result of a disagreement between Professor Ferres and Professor Dandrick about an experiment on which they were working. I believe an experiment to fix more exactly the velocity of accelerated subnucleonic particles, beta micropositos, wasn't it, Chancellor Kane? Kane looked at him in surprise. Your Majesty, I know nothing about that. Professor Dandrick is head of the physics department. He came to me about six months ago and told me that, in his opinion, this experiment was desirable. I simply deferred to his judgment and authorized it. "'Your Majesty has just stated the purpose of the experiment,' Dandrick said. "'For centuries there have been inaccuracies in mathematical descriptions of subnucleonic events, and this experiment was undertaken in the hope of eliminating these inaccuracies.' He went into a lengthy mathematical explanation. "'Yes, I understand that, Professor. But just what was the actual experiment in terms of physical operations?' Dandrick looked helpless for a moment. Ferres, who had been choking back a laugh, interrupted. "'Your Majesty, we were using the big turbo-linear accelerator to project fast micropositos down an evacuated tube one kilometer in length, and clocking them with light, the velocity of which has been established almost absolutely. I will say that with respect to the light, there were no observable inaccuracies at any time, and until the micropositos were accelerated to 16.06754333 and one-third times light speed, they registered much as expected. Beyond that velocity, however, the target for the micropositos began registering impacts before the source registered emission, although the light target was still registering normally. I notified Professor Dandrick about this, and you notified him? Wasn't he present at the time? No, Your Majesty. Your Majesty, I am head of the physics department of the university. I have too much administrative work to waste time on the technical aspects of experiments like this, Dandrick interjected. I understand. Professor Ferres was actually performing the experiment. You told Professor Dandrick what had happened. What then? Why, Your Majesty, he simply declared that the limit of accuracy had been reached, and ordered the experiment dropped. He then reported the highest reading before this anticipation effect was observed as the newly established limit of accuracy in measuring the velocity of accelerated micropositos, and said nothing whatever in his report about the anticipation effect. I read a summary of the report. Why, Professor Dandrick, did you omit mentioning this slightly unusual effect? Why, because the whole thing was utterly preposterous, that's why, Dandrick barked, and then hastily added, Your Imperial Majesty. He turned and glared at Ferres. Professors do not glare at galactic emperors. Your Majesty, the limit of accuracy had been reached. 
after that it was only to be expected that the apparatus would give erratic reports. It might have been expected that the apparatus would stop registering increased velocity relative to the light speed standard, or that it would begin registering disproportionately, Forrest said. But, Your Majesty, I'll submit that it was not to be expected that it would register impacts before emissions. And I'll add this. After registering this slight apparent jump into the future, there was no proportionate increase in anticipation with further increase in acceleration. I wanted to find out why. But when Professor Dandrick saw what was happening, he became almost hysterical, and ordered the accelerator shut down as though he were afraid it would blow up in his face. "'I think it has blown up in his face,' Prince Stravon said quietly. "'Professor, have you any theory or supposition or even any wild guess as to how this anticipation effect occurs?' "'Yes, Your Highness. I suspect that the apparent anticipation is simply an observational illusion, similar to the illusion of time-reversal experienced when it was first observed, though not realized, that positrons sometimes exceeded light-speed. "'Why, that's what I've been saying all along,' Dandrick broke in. The whole thing is an illusion to—to to having reached the limit of observational accuracy. I understand, Professor Dandrick. Go on, Professor Ferris. I think that beyond 16.06754333333 in one-third times light-speed, the micropositos cease to have any velocity at all, velocity being defined as rate of motion in four-dimensional space-time. I believe they moved through the three spatial dimensions without moving at all in the fourth temporal dimension. They made that kilometer from source to target literally in nothing flat, instantaneity. That must have been the first time he had actually come out and said it. Dandrick jumped to his feet with a cry that was just short of being a shriek. He's crazy, Your Majesty. You mustn't. That is. Well, I mean, p please, Your Majesty, uh, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's raving. He knows perfectly well what he's saying, and it probably scares him more than it does you. The difference is that he's willing to face it, and you aren't. The difference was that Forrest was a scientist, and Dandrick was a science teacher. To Forrest a new door had opened the first new door in eight hundred years. To Dandrick, it threatened invalidation of everything he had taught since the morning he had opened his first class. He could no longer say to his pupils, "'You are here to learn from me,' he would have to say more humbly, "'We are here to learn from the universe.'" It had happened so many times before, too. The comfortable and established universe had fitted all the known facts, and then new facts had been learned that wouldn't fit it. The third planet of the Sol system had once been the center of the universe, and then Terra and Sol, and even the galaxy, had been forced to abdicate centricity. The atom had been indivisible until somebody divided it. There had been intangible substance that had permeated the universe because it had been necessary for the transmission of light. 
until it was demonstrated to be unnecessary and non-existent. And the speed of light had been the ultimate velocity once, and could be exceeded no more than an atom could be divided. And light speed had been constant, regardless of distance from source, and the universe, to explain certain observed phenomena, had been believed to be expanding simultaneously in all directions. And the things that had happened in psychology, when psi phenomena had become too obvious to be shrugged away. And then, when Dr. Dandrick ordered you to drop this experiment just when it was becoming interesting, you refused? Your Majesty, I couldn't stop. Not then. But Dr. Dandrick ordered the apparatus dismantled and scrapped, and I'm afraid I lost my head. Told him to punch his silly old face in, for one thing. You admit that? Chancellor Kane cried. I think you showed admirable self-restraint in not doing it. Did you explain to Chancellor Kane the importance of this experiment? I tried to, Your Majesty, but he simply wouldn't listen. But, Your Majesty, Kane expostulated, Professor Dendrick is head of the department, and one of the foremost physicists of the Empire, and this young man is only one of the junior assistant professors. Is it even a full professor, and he got his degree from some school away off planet, University of Bratterton on Gimli. Were you a pupil of Professor von Evrot? Prince Travon asked sharply. Why, yes, sir, I— Ah, no wonder, Dandrick crowed. Your Majesty, that man's an out-and-out -out charlatan. He was kicked out of the university here ten years ago, and I'm surprised he could even get on the faculty of a school like Bratterton on a planet like Gimli. "'Why, you stupid old fool!' Forrest yelled at him. "'You aren't enough of a physicist to oil robots in von Everett's lab.' "'There, your majesty,' Kane said. "'You see how much respect for authority this hooligan has.' "'On Aditya, such would be unthinkable. "'On Aditya, everybody respects authority, whether it's respectable or not.' Count Tomson laughed and he realized that he must have spoken aloud. Nobody else seemed to have gotten the joke. "'Well, how about the riot now?' he asked. "'Who started that?' "'Colonel Hunderson made an investigation on the spot,' Prince Dravon said. "'May I suggest that we hear his report?' "'Yes, indeed. Colonel?' Hunderson rose and stood with his hands behind his back, looking fixedly at the wall behind the desk. "'Your Majesty, the students of Professor Peress's advanced subnuclear physics class, postgraduate students, all of them, were told of Professor Peress's dismissal by a faculty member who had taken over the class this morning. They all got up and walked out in a body and gathered outdoors on the campus to discuss the matter. At the next class break they were joined by other science students, and they went into the stadium where they were joined—' half an hour later, by more students who had learned of the dismissal in the meantime. At no time was the gathering disorderly. The stadium is covered by a viewscreen pickup which is fitted with a recording device. There is a complete audio-visual of the whole thing, including the attack on them by the campus police. The attack was ordered by Chancellor Kane at about 1100, 
The chief of the campus police was told to clear the stadium, and when he asked if he was to use force, Chancellor Kane told him to use anything he wanted to. I did not. I told him to get the students out of the stadium, but— The chief of campus police carries a personal wire recorder, Anderson said in his flat monotone. He has a recording of the order in Chancellor Kane's own voice. I heard it myself. The police, he continued, first tried to use gas, but the wind was against them. Then they tried to use sonostunners, but the students rushed them and overwhelmed them. If your majesty will permit a personal opinion, while I do not sympathize with their subsequent attack on the administration center, they were entirely within their rights in defending themselves in the stadium, and it's hard enough to stop trained and disciplined troops when they are winning. After defeating the police they simply went on by what might be called the momentum of victory. Then uh, you'd say that it's positively established that the students were behaving in a peaceable and orderly manner in the stadium when they were attacked, and that Chancellor Kane ordered the attack personally? I would emphatically, Your Majesty. I think we've done enough here, gentlemen. He turned to Count Thompson. This is jointly the affair of education and security. I would suggest that you and Prince Travan join in a formal and public inquiry, and until all the facts have been established and recorded, and action decided upon, the dismissal of Professor Forres will be reversed, and he be restored to his position on the faculty. Yes, Your Majesty, Thompson agreed, and I think it would be a good idea for Chancellor Kane to take a vacation till then, too. I would further suggest that, as this micropositive experiment is crucial to the whole question, it should be repeated, under the personal direction of Professor Forres. I agree with that, Your Majesty, Prince Travan said. If it's as important as I think it is, Professor Dandrick is greatly to be censured in ordering it stopped, and for failing to report this anticipation effect. We'll consult about the inquiry, including the experiment, tomorrow, Your Highness, Thompson told Trovan. Paul rose, and everybody rose with him. That being the case, you gentlemen are all excused. The students' procession ought to be arriving now, and I want to tell them what's going to be done. Prince Trevon, Count Thompson, do you care to accompany me? Going up to the central terrace in front of the octagon tower, he turned to Count Thompson. I noticed you laughing at that remark of mine about Aditya, he said. Have you met the first citizen? Only on screen, sir. He was at me for about an hour this morning. It seems that they are reforming the educational system on Aditya. On Aditya everything gets reformed every ten years, whether it needs it or not. He came here to find somebody to take charge of the reformation. He stopped short, bringing the others to a halt beside him, and laughed heartily. "'Well, we'll send First Citizen Yago away happy. We'll make him a present of the most distinguished educator on Odin.' "'Cain?' Thompson asked. "'Cain! Isn't it wonderful? If you have a few problems, you have trouble. But if you have a whole lot of problems, they start solving each other.' We get a chance to get rid of Cain and create a vacancy that can be filled by somebody big enough to fill it. 
the Ministry of Education gets out from under a nasty situation, First Citizen Yago gets what he thinks he wants, and if I know Cain, and if I know the People's Commonwealth of Adia, it won't be a year before Yago has Cain shot or stuffs him into jail, and then the Space Navy will have an excuse to visit Aditya, and Aditya'll never be the same afterward, Prince Travon added. The students massed on the front lawns were still cheering as they went down after addressing them. The security guards were conspicuously absent, and it was a detail of red-kilted Thoron riflemen who met them as they entered the hall to the session chamber. Prince Ganze approached, attended by two household guard officers, a human and a Thoran. Count Tomson looked from one to the other of his companions, bewildered. The bewildering thing was that everything was as it should be. "'Well, gentlemen,' Paul said, "'I'm sure that both of you will want to confer for a moment with your colleagues in the rotunda before the session. Please don't feel obligated to attend me further.' Prince Ganze approached as they went down the hall. "'Your Majesty, what is going on here?' he demanded querulously. "'Just who is in control of the palace? You are Prince Travon. And where is His Imperial Highness? And where is General Dorfle?' "'I sent Dorfle to join Prince Roderick's picnic party. If you're upset about this, imagine what he might have done here.' Prince Ganze looked at him curiously for a moment. "'I thought I understood what was happening,' he said. "'Now I—' uh, "'This business about the students, sir, how did it come out?' Paul told him. They talked for a while, and then the Prime Minister looked at his watch and suggested that the session ought to be getting started. Paul nodded, and they went down the hall into the rotunda. The big, semicircular lobby was empty now, except for a platoon of household guards, and the Empress Morris and her ladies-in-waiting. She advanced as quickly as her sheath gown would permit, and took his arm. The ladies-in-waiting fell in behind her, and Prince Ganze went ahead, crying, "'My lords, your venerable highnesses, gentlemen, His Imperial Majesty!' Maris tightened her grip on his arm as they started forward. "'Paul!' she hissed into his ear. "'What is this silly story about Yorn Travon trying to seize the throne?' "'Isn't it? Yorn's been too close to the throne for too long not to know what sort of a seat it is. He'd commit any crime up to and including genocide to keep off it.' She gave a quick gip to get into step with him. Then why is he filled the palace with these black coats? Is Rod all right? Perfectly all right. He's somewhere out in the mountains, keeping Harv Dorfle out of mischief. They crossed the session hall and took their seats on the double throne. Everybody sat down, and the Prime Minister, after some formalities, declared the plenary session in being. Almost at once one of the Prince Councillors was on his feet, begging His Majesty's leave to interrogate the government. "'I wish to ask His Highness, the Minister of Security, the meaning of all this unprecedented disturbance, both here in the palace and in the city,' he said. Prince Stravan rose at once. 
"'Your Majesty,' in reply to the question of His Venerable Highness, he began, and then launched himself into an account of the student riot, the march to petition the Emperor, and the clash with the non-working-class hooligans. As to the affair at the university, I hesitate to speak on what is really the concern of His Lordship the Minister of Education. But as to the fighting in the city, if it is still going on, I can assure His Venerable Highness that the gendarmes and security guards have it well in hand. The persons responsible are being rounded up, and, if the Minister of Justice concurs, an inquiry will be started to-morrow. The Minister of Justice assured the Minister of Security that his ministry would be quite ready to cooperate in the inquiry. Count Thomson then got up and began talking about the riot at the university. "'What did happen, Paul?' Maris whispered. "'Chancellor Kane sacked a science professor for being too interested in science. The students didn't like it. I think Kane's successor will rectify that. Have a good time at the flower festivals?' She raised her fan to hide a grimace. Oh, "'I made my schedule,' she said. Oh, "'Tomorrow I have fifty more booked.' "'Your Imperial Majesty,' the counselor who had risen paused to make sure that he had the Imperial attention before continuing, "'insomuch as this question also seems to involve a scientific experiment, I would suggest that the Ministry of Science and Technology is also interested—' And since there is at present no minister holding that portfolio, I would suggest that the discussion be continued after a minister has been elected. The Minister of Health and Sanity jumped to his feet. Your Imperial Majesty, permit me to concur with the proposal of His Venerable Highness, and to extend it with the sub-proposal that the Ministry of Science and Technology be abolished and its functions and personnel divided among the other ministries, specifically those of education and of economics. The Minister of Fine Arts was up before he was fully seated. "'Your Imperial Majesty, permit me to concur with the proposal of Count Gilfred, and to extend it further with the proposal that the Ministry of Defense, now also vacant, be likewise abolished.' and its functions and personnel added to the Ministry of Security under His Highness Prince Traban. So that was it. Maris beside him said, Well! He had long ago discovered that she could pack more meaning into that monosyllable than the average counselor could into a half-hour's speech. Prince Gonze was thunderstruck, and from the bench of counselors six or eight voices were babbling loudly at once. Four ministers were on their feet, clamoring for recognition. Count Douglas of Economics was yelling the loudest, so he got it. "'Your Imperial Majesty, it would have been most unseemly in me to have spoken in favor of the proposal of Count Guilford, being an interested party.' But I feel no such hesitation in concurring with the proposal of Baron Garat, the Minister of Fine Arts. Indeed, I consider it a most excellent proposal, 
"'And I consider it the most diabolically dangerous proposal to be made in this hall in the last six centuries,' old Admiral Gocklar shouted. "'This is a proposal to concentrate all the armed force of the Empire in the hands of one man. Who can say what unscrupulous use might be made of such power?' "'Are you intimating, Prince Counselor, that Prince Stravan is contemplating some tyrannical or subversive use of such power?' Count Tomson of all people demanded. There was a concerted gasp at that. About half the plenary session were absolutely sure that he was. Admiral Gecklar backed quickly away from the question. "'Prince Stravan will not be the last Minister of Security.' he said. "'What I was about to say, Your Majesty, is that as matters stand, security has a virtual monopoly on armed power on this planet. When these disorders in the city, which Prince Stravan's men are now bringing under control, broke out, there was, I am informed, an order sent out to bring regular army and planetary militia into Asgard. It will be hours before any of the former can arrive, and at least a day before the latter can even be mobilized. By the time any of them get here, there will be nothing for them to do. Is that not correct, Prince Ganze? The Prime Minister looked at him angrily, stung by the realization that somebody else had a personal intelligence service as good as his own, then swallowed his anger and assented. Furthermore, Count Douglas continued, the Ministry of Defense itself is an anachronism, which no doubt accounts for the condition in which we now find it. The Empire has no external enemies whatever. All our defense problems are problems of internal security. Let us therefore turn the facilities over to the Ministry responsible for the tasks. The debate went on and on. He paid less and less attention to it and it became increasingly obvious that opposition to the proposition was dwindling. Cries of, "'Vote! Vote!' began to be heard from his supporters. Prince Ganze rose from his desk and came to the throne. "'Your Imperial Majesty,' he said softly, "'I am opposed to this proposition, but I am convinced that enough favor it to pass it, even over Your Majesty's veto. Before the vote is called, does your majesty wish my resignation? He rose and stepped down beside the prime minister, putting an arm over Prince Ganze's shoulder. Far from it, old friend, he said in a distinctly audible voice. I will have too much need for you, but as for this proposal, I don't oppose it. I think it an excellent one. It has my approval. He lowered his voice. As soon as it's passed, place General Dorfle's name in nomination. The Prime Minister looked at him sadly for a moment, then nodded, returning to his desk, where he rapped for order and called for the vote. "'Well, if you can't lick em, join em, Maris said as he sat down beside her. "'And if they start chasing you, just yell, "'There he goes! Follow me!' The proposal carried almost unanimously. Prince Ganze then presented the name of Captain General Dorfle for elevation to the bench of counselors, and the Emperor decreed it. 
As soon as the session was adjourned, and he could do so, he slipped out the little door behind the throne into an elevator. In the room at the top of the octagon tower, he laid aside his belt and dress dagger and unfastened his tunic, then sat down in his deep chair and called a serving robot. It was the one which had brought him his breakfast, and he greeted it as a friend. It lit a cigarette for him and poured a drink of brandy. For a long time he sat, smoking and sipping and looking out the wide window to the west, where the orange sun was firing the clouds behind the mountains. And he realized that he was abominably tired. Well, no wonder. More empire history had been made today than in the years since he had come to the throne. Then something behind him clicked. He turned his head to see Yorn Trevon emerging from the concealed elevator. He grinned and lifted his drink in greeting. "'I thought you'd be a little late,' he said. "'Everybody trying to climb onto the bandwagon?' Yorn Trevon came forward, unbuckling his belt and laying it with Paul's. He sank into the chair opposite, and the robot poured him a drink. "'Well, do you blame them? What would it have looked like to you in their place?' A coup d'etat. For that matter, wasn't that what it was? Why didn't you tell me you were springing it? I didn't spring it. It was sprung on me. I didn't know a thing about it till Max Douglas buttonholed me down by the landing stage. I'd intended fighting this proposal to partition science and technology, but this riot blew up and scared Douglas and Thompson and Guilford and the rest of them. They weren't too sure of their majority. That's why they had the election postponed a couple of times. But they were sure that the riot would turn some of the undecided councillors against them. So they offered to back me to take over defense in exchange for my supporting their proposal. It looked too good to pass up. Even at the price of wrecking science and technology? It was wrecked, or left to rust into uselessness long ago. The main function of technology has been to suppress anything that might threaten the state of economic rigor mortis that Douglas calls stability, and the function of science has been to let muttonheads like Kane and Dandrick dominate the teaching of science. Well, defense has its own scientific and technical sectors, and when we come to carving the bird, Douglas and Thompson are going to see a lot of slices going into my plate. And, when it's all cut up, it will be discovered that there is no provision for original research. So it will please my majesty to institute an imperial office of scientific research, independent of any ministry, and guess who'll be named to head it? For us. And by the way, we're all set on Cain, too. First Citizen Yago is as delighted to have him as we are to get rid of him. Why don't you get Von Everett back and give him the job? Good, if he takes charge there at the opening of the next academic year. In ten years we'll have a thousand young men, maybe ten times that many, who won't be afraid of new things and new ideas. But the main thing is that now you have defense, and now the plan can really start firing all jets. Yes, Yorn Travon got out his cigarettes and lit one. Paul glanced at the robot, hoping that its feelings hadn't been hurt. "'All these native uprisings I've been blowing up out of intertribal knife-fights 
and all these civil wars my people have been manufacturing. There'll be more of them, and I'll start yelling my head off for an adequate space navy. And after we get it, these local troubles will all stop. And then what'll we be expected to do? Scrap the ships? They both knew what would be done with some of them. It would have to be done stealthily while nobody was looking, but some of those ships would go far beyond the boundaries of the Empire, and new things would happen, new worlds, new problems, great and frightening changes. Paul, we agreed upon this long ago when we were still boys at the university. The Empire stopped growing, and when things stop growing they start dying, the death of petrifaction. And when petrifaction is complete, the cracking and the crumbling starts, and there's no way of stopping it. But if we can get people out onto new planets, the Empire won't die, it'll start growing again. You didn't start that thing at the university this morning yourself, did you? Not the student riot, no. But the hooligan attack, yes. That was some of my own men. The real hooligans began looting after Hondrasan had gotten the students out of the district. We collared all of them, including their boss, Nutchie the Knife, right away. And as soon as we did that, Big Moogie and Zico the Nose tried to move in. We're cleaning them up now. By tomorrow morning there won't be one of these non-working voting blocks left in Asgard. And by the end of the week they'll be cleaned up all over Odin. I have discovered a plot, and they're all involved in it. Wait a moment, Paul got to his feet. That reminds me. Harv Dorfle's hiding Rod and Olva out in the mountains. I wanted him out of here while things were happening. I'll have to call him and tell him it's safe to come in now. Well, zip up your tunic and put your dagger on. You looked as though you'd been arrested, disarmed, and searched. That's right. He hastily repaired his appearance and went to the screen across the room, punching out the combination of the screen with Roderick's picnic party. A young lieutenant of the household troops appeared in it and had to be reassured. He got General Dorfley. "'Your Majesty, are you all right?' "'Perfectly all right, General, and it's quite safe to bring His Imperial Highness in. The conspiracy against the throne has been crushed.' "'Oh, thank the gods! Is Prince Trevon a prisoner?' "'Quite the contrary, General. It was our loyal and devoted subject, Prince Trevon, who crushed the conspiracy.' "'But, but, but, Your Majesty, you aren't to be blamed for suspecting him, General. His agents were working in the very innermost councils of the conspirators. Every one of the people whom you suspected, with excellent reason, was actually working to defeat the plot. Think back, General. The scheme to put the gun in the viewscreen, the scheme to sabotage the elevator, the scheme to introduce assassins into the orchestra with guns built into their trumpets. Every one came to your notice because of what seemed to be some indiscretion of the plotters, didn't it? Why, why, yes, Your Majesty. By this time tomorrow he would have a complete set of memories for each one of them. You mean the indiscretions were deliberate? Your vigilance and loyalty made it necessary for them to resort to these fantastic expedients, and your vigilance defeated them as fast as they came to your notice. Well, 
Today Prince Stravan and I struck back. I may tell you, in confidence, that every one of the conspirators is dead, killed in this afternoon's rioting, which was incited for that purpose by Prince Travan. Then, then there will be no more plots against your life? There was a note of regret in the old man's voice. No more, your venerable highness. But what did your majesty call me? he asked incredulously. I took the honor of being the first to address you by your new title, Prince Counselor Dorfley. He left the old man overcome and blubbering happily on the shoulder of the crown prince, who winked at his father out of the screen. Prince Travan had gotten a couple of fresh drinks from the robot and handed one to him when he returned to his chair. He'll be finding the bench of counselors riddled with treason inside a week, Travan said. You handle that just right, though. Another case of making problems solve each other. You were telling me about a plot you'd discovered? Oh, yes. This is one to top Dorfle's best efforts. All the voting block bosses on Odin are in conspiracy to start a civil war to give them a chance to loot the planet. There isn't a word of truth in it, of course, but it'll do to arrest and hold them for a few days, and by that time some of my undercovers will be in control of every non-worker vote on the planet. After all, the cartels put an end to competition in every other business. Why not a voting cartel, too? Then, whenever there's an election, we just advertise for bids. Why, that would mean absolute control of the non-working vote, yes. And I'll guarantee personally that in five years the politics of Odin will have become so unbearably corrupt and abusive that the intellectuals, the technicians, the business people, even the nobility, will be flocking to the polls to vote. And if only half of them turn out, they'll snow the non-workers under. And that'll mean eventually an end to vote-selling, and the non-workers will have to find work. We'll find it for them. <laughs> Great and frightening changes, Jorn Travon laughed. He recognized the phrase. Probably thought of it himself. Paul lifted his glass. To the Minister of Disturbance. Your Majesty. They drank to each other, and then Jorn Travon said, We had a lot of wild dreams when we were boys. It looks as though we're starting to make some of them come true. You know, when we were in the university, the students would never have done what they did today. They didn't even do it ten years ago, when von Everott was dismissed. And von Everott's pupil came back to Odin and touched this whole thing off. He thought for a moment. I wonder what Forrest has in that anticipation effect. I think I can see what can come out of it. If he can propagate a wave that behaves like those micropositos, we may not have to depend on ships for communication. We may be able, some day, to screen Baldur and Vishnu or Alton or Thor as easily as you screen Dorfle up in the mountains. He thought silently for a moment. I don't know whether that would be good or bad. But it would be new, and that's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. Flower festivals, Paul said. 
and when Yorn Travon wanted to know what he meant, he told him. When Princess Olva's Empress, she's going to curse the name of Clin Fores. Flower festivals all around the galaxy without end. End of Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper This book read by Phil Chenevere, October 2020 Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Trish. Get a little close to your mic, Evan, please. Right. Thank you. Uh, we're going to talk about Ministry of Disturbance by H. Beam Piper, first published in Astounding Science Fiction, December 1958. Uh, did you see uh, why uh, uh, John W. Campbell bought this story? No, why did John W. buy this story? Uh, it's, it's within the text, you can tell, um, because, uh, psychic powers are real <laughs> for no well, reason. Yes. Yes. It, it's a random throw in. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's a way, way you sell it, right? If you're writing for weird tales, you need to have a whipping scene <laughs> so you can get the cover. If you're writing for John W. Campbell, psychic powers are real is important. The robots, that doesn't, you know, he can take them or leave them, but he needs the psychic powers are real. Um, I don't think it plays that big a role in the book, but this guy, it doesn't play Mr. Beam. It's really just mentioned as a thing that happened. I mean, well, I mean, it does play a role. Precognition, but it yeah. really is. I mean, I mean, they admit as much as like, oh yeah, it's just bad feelings and half the time they make up stuff anyway. So yeah. Yeah. It's, it's negligible. It's it's in there. Um, so this is a very weird story. Uh, I didn't realize how weird it would be until I read it. Um, I want to say this is my summary of it. It's a day in the life of the Emperor of the Galaxy. It's the day in the life yeah. of the Emperor of a Galaxy, of a galaxy at peace where he has to manufacture churn to keep things going. It turns out to be a fairly momentous day in the life. Well, why, why do you say momentous? Because it's, I think it's a regular day in, in the life. No, he said, you know, at the end, yeah, he says, you know, more stuff happened in today than more changes happened today than had happened in the last uh, 600 years or something in, in the last long period of time. Yeah, that's true. It does say that. But uh, this is also uh, I, very ossified and stagnant. <laughs> so it'd be like. You know, I went outside today and looked at the leaves. And that's because you haven't been outside in six years. So it's a momentous day, right? Like, there's the idea that at the end, maybe things are going to change in the future. But really, um, like it says at the end, it's the anticipation effect, right? Very little action. Like, there's a protest. We think, oh, maybe, maybe he's going to get overthrown. No, it's all been ginned up. Well, he does. He doesn't get overthrown, but uh, power gets taken from him. Some uh, tell power, me more. Some tell degree me more. of power, which hadn't Be happened in a long time. But basically, isn't he in? You know, isn't he the one who manipulated? Like he wants to be replaced by a robot. He'd be he'd be down for that, right? But yeah, he secretly manipulates stuff, but uh, you know, as, as according to the Council of Counts or whatever they call themselves, um, mm. the Ministry, uh, they have 
staged a quiet coup to, you know, replace some ministers with people that they like and uh, move around ministries um, to to uh, change who has authority. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's not a Russian revolution or something, but things are definitely on the way to change. Yeah, eventually, if the if this technology works out, this new technological uh, faster than light, yeah, faster than light uh, communication, and Ansible basically is what they yeah on the or edge of possibly okay. time travel as well, but more importantly, yeah, it 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 will be a new technological change. Um, then that will and in his manipulations of of the various courtiers around power. He well, eventually, he's trying to steer the ship away from ossification and towards expansion. So there's like a lot of theses going on in H. Beam Piper's story and his mind. Um, but <laughs> it's it's surprisingly uh, um, unfocused, and yet yeah, I think it's pretty good for what it is. It it is a day in the life of the emperor of the galaxy i mean mean, it's a philosophical and historic socio-historical theory as a story um i don't know how much piper you've read jesse besides what we've besides that one or two stories we've done on the podcast we did we did a novel not that long ago yeah right we we did we did we did the murder in the gun room we think we did one other story Done. Yeah, I've done Little Fuzzy and a bunch of sh- other shorter things. But right, I right. Did, read, you know, did you know this takes place in the Little Fuzzy universe? Yes, yes, I did. And 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 there's also mentions of the space race vikings. I didn't. I've not read that one. I I have read that one. I didn't realize these all took place in the same universe. Apparently, right. this was written before those. But so but but anyway, he's setting stuff up. He said he's setting stuff up, but. I'm mostly thinking of his um, parallel universe stories, where he where he talks up where he has a group of people going between alternate timelines, and he gets paradigm. Paradigm, thank you. Yeah. And he and he has lots of theories about how civilizations rise. Well, as a very Oswald Spangler. He, it's clear that Piper read and liked him a lot, and so I think here in here he's looking out of of relatively decadent empire that's static and the emperor basically to stave off something worse is basically engineering engineering fake plots to basically churn up society and this one actually comes up with a technological change so he actually succeeds i get the feeling he's been doing this for quite a while i mean i think i think it's clear in the story that he's been he's been manufacturing I mean, manufacturing these disturbances just to keep things from being too ossified. That, well, that sounds and there's very... A, but there's also a theory that he has, that Piper has, which is if you have enough problems, the problems sol- solve each other, most of them, most yes. of the time. And I think that that's hilarious, and it might even be true. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it's a theory you can work with. It's, it, it's an argument you can work with. But it, my, it's my, my, related to like how the United States, you know, when they want to, uh, it's there's a movie, uh, Wag the Dog, right? You, you, if you if you have like domestic problems, you gin up some foreign problems. You have uh, a producer at war. 
Well, absolutely. But also, but also like, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade is a good example. The Democrats could have, you know, fixed this. They didn't want to fix it. I'm I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that absent, absent the actual application of heat that they could have gotten all 60 votes in the Senate to do it. Well, absent the application of heat is exactly what happened. There was no application of heat. What, 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 what and the reason they don't care is because it's a tool. It's a tool I guess for... So why, why wouldn't you want those empowered to apply heat to achieve good... No, no, no. What, by, by heat, what I'm saying is until, until, the Repub- until, until the Supreme Court was thing was struck down, I'm not certain that... Say at they, the talk, of- they said it every time they were getting elected. Yeah. We're going to... We're gonna, you know, make it a law, and they never did. Well, and the well, reason they, they didn't c- is, I, I, I'm arguing that not they never did, but because they mm-hmm. never could. But they didn't want to. It's a tool. Okay. Well, one of the, I, one we're, of the, we're getting way off the we're getting off the books. Uh, no, I think this is very interesting because one of the well, reviews well, I saw I'm going on Goodreads for a bit because I don't talk politics on this podcast, which is crazy because this is a political story. <laughs> um, I just want to point out that uh, one of the reviews on Goodreads said the word that sort of made me realize oh yeah yeah that makes sense uh machiavelli right this is a machiavellian story um and piper who is a very strange guy right weird writer you can tell i think just by reading his stuff that he's uh not university academically trained because he spell things he spells things weird sometimes his phraseology is a little off brilliant guy and definitely read a ton of stuff but um, you can sort of tell he's a self-taught man. And this is him saying, like, uh, like at the beginning where he's smoking all those cigarettes. Like, he literally, there's a, a couple sentences where he starts he starts a cigarette, drinks some coffee, and then he's starting another cigarette. Um, so that's his morning, right? And then he sits down at the typewriter and conjures up this whole universe, a whole galaxy full of intrigue and stuff. And that's him. So the, he is our Emperor Paul the Twenty Second, and so he's he's applying his his theory of the universe of how the world works uh, to science fiction. He does a really cool job with it, but it is all in his head, right? <laughs> the neo barbarians, like it's very uh, engaged with um, the same kind of thinking as Robert E. Howard and H. P. Lovecraft about civilization and barbarism and and that stuff, and then. Yeah, everything's about manipulation. Well, maybe, um, maybe this is because of the genre, but I was I was thinking more actually Philip Dick and how at this around the same time Philip Dick was really obsessed with imperial decadence. Yeah, a lot of yeah. early short stories. It was the same kind of problem. Like, how do we how do we keep a, a civilization going? Right, and any kind of points to frontier often as the solution to that problem and here it's more maybe just some kind of disorder well, no it's about yeah. the frontier too right they want to yeah. expand you need to expand if you're gonna survive right and yeah spangler's in there but i'm also thinking of like there's a popular historian toynbee he was toynbee yeah he was i mean it works pretty I don't know if you call it popular, but it had a popular audience, right? I, I mean, a lot of people to, read Toynbee. To, to, Toynbee gets mentioned Toynbee in, in this. It's mentioned in um, Time Out of Joint. 
Yeah, he like Dick mentions Toynbee a lot. So right. I, I've talked about that. They're definitely but, engaged um, with the um, same stuff. Toynbee, and then if you want to get more esoteric, and I, I don't know if Piper was aware of him, but Ibn Khaldun, the the North African historian mm-hmm. in the 14th century, was also very interested in this idea of imperial decadence. Yeah, like, did, did he come up with the whole idea of like, like um, dynasties generally last three generations? Isn't he? The guy yeah, but that actually, there? I think Toynbee gets a lot of his stuff, at least in, maybe not directly, but at the very least, secondhand from Ibn Khaldun. Yeah, here how there's like when empires begin, they have some sort of defining characteristic that makes them powerful, makes them able to expand and and overcome their their whatever ecological constraints Niche, yeah. they have. But but once they reach a certain level, then they they like decadence inevitably comes in. Yeah, it's, it's the whole idea of, that it's a pretty common theory at yeah. that time, I think, in history. And Spengler of course does it too. Yeah. A empire ascends steps yeah. and Hobnail Boost then goes down in slippers. Yeah. I mean I I mean it's a it's 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 a point of view. I think there are much more complicated reasons why empires rise and fall than decadence. I mean, decadence yeah. was popular at the time as a theory, but there's lots of reasons why various empires from from the Bronze Age through Rome to, to the end of the uh, the kingdom. But even so, some of those other theories, I think there might be hints of it, like. Like just how weighted the bureaucracy is here. Right? Oh yeah, and yeah. The, 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 it's like it's 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 how very top it, heavy. It is. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking the Byzantine Empire a lot when I was yeah, reading this. Story. And there's other things like, of course, there's the automation and the the class conflict that emerges from the automation and and all of that, and even how like a. Uh-oh. Yeah, I don't have the idea fully fully formed here, but it's it's connected to how this student revolt is. Yeah, I mean, I, is, I mean, it, I, it's I, a sign I, of just like once you have enough. I guess what I'm trying to say is once you have all this institution built up, right? Once you have all these uh, all this top heaviness, mm-hmm. right? Then Something that relatively minor in that sphere, in in one minor area, may have repercussions elsewhere. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and yeah. That's um, the problem of having a, like a that top heavy system. Um, and here it's you, like university protest or whatever. It's like a kind you, of a. It's significant technologically, and and Piper talks about that, right? This might be subspace communications achievement, and then that will that will change. That's that significant, change but really the about. the instigation is like. Students upset that they fired my professor. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, small changes cause big things. Um, yeah. Have you read? Uh, have you, Jesse or Trish, read A World Out of Time by Larry Niven? I have. Yes. Yeah, done a show so, on it. So, was I on that show? I don't think I was on the show. Don't know. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. But it's I'm the thinking, one with a snake cat. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the whole. There's a lot of theorying as he's journeying to the center of the galaxy about hydraulic empires and how small changes can knock them over so the computer doesn't want him to go back to earth to uh knock over uh, his society so right it doesn't want his contaminating influence right thank you trish 
so, because they're old and decadent, right? Because because they'd be old and decadent by the time they got back, exactly. So, so yeah, just, I mean, I mean that it, it, that's a very again very Spenglerian idea that yeah that once empires get too ossified, then small things that they could have absorbed in the earlier periods are enough to knock them off their perch. I wanna I wanna and so talk here. About- Oh, let me just finish. Um, okay. And so here, I think the emperor, the emperor is trying to stave off that ossifying period by having these churns. And this time it turned up not only student protest, but possibly subspace communication. So win-win. Yeah. It makes is... me think of, um, cause I was also listening to a book on the, on, um, the sack of Roman 410. It talks about Stilicho and Alaric. And I can see now historically that Rome might have transitioned and gotten reversed into a Romish, Romish, um, Gothic Western form, but that kind that got stillborn when Stilicho got knocked off and the Western Empire went into uh, collapse. So I, I wanted to talk about like uh, the tone because mm-hmm. I think he's having it both ways. Um, this is a jokey story, very very humorous. much so. Yes. Very humorous. Uh, I think he uh, isn't necessarily saying this is definitely the way, <laughs> but I think he is thinking it through in a way that shows that he he's thought a lot about it. So um, the, I mean, there's it's been in the news all this week, right? Or I guess the last couple of days, anyways. Queen Elizabeth died. People care, <laughs> um, and uh, and then. Uh, Australian lady, uh, Caitlin Johnstone is like, we have a king now? Seriously? Because Australia is like, yep, we're double, we're doubling down on the monarchy, even though there's quite a Republican movement down there. And they have the official come out wearing his medals given to him by the, the queen saying, Charles the third is the, is the king of Australia. Right. Um, here we've got, uh, his imperial Ma- majesty, Paul the 22nd. And we're told that, what's his son's name? Delroy? No. Roderick. Roderick. And so it alternates Roderick's and uh, Paul's. Uh, and if there's 22 Paul's, then there's going to be 21 or 23 uh, or 22 Roderick's, right? Um, yeah. So going back uh, f- 44 generations, um, this family has been in charge? I don't think so. <laughs> now, even if that's true... Um, the fact that he's semi-competent and that it's lasted this long, I don't think so, right? But he has it in the story that this is, it's just assumed that the only way to manage a galactic empire is to have a monarchy that is, because it makes stability. And we've seen in our own history that that's absolutely not true. If you can't have a kid, right? And also it's Roderick's and Paul's all the way back. There's no queen's. He's having some. He's having some fun, right? So, how seriously should we take all this? If if he is already joking around about how it all works, I I do see the connection with Dick with regard to the robots. There's a little, you know, starts and ends kind of with him thinking about the feelings of the robots, even though they don't appear to have any feelings at all. It might be silly to treat robots like people. But that wasn't as bad as treating people like robots, an attitude which was becoming entirely too prevalent, quoting from the story, if so many people didn't act like robots. So he's actually bewailing the fact that 
uh, I, poor me, I have to govern these people. I have to Machiavelli them all day long. Um, and then what do they do to solve problems? They promote the incompetent. <laughs> so <laughs> how seriously can we take this story when it sort of seems to be making fun of and also explaining? I, I, I feel conflicted. I don't think we're supposed to take it seriously. I think some of the ideas in it might be serious, but the whole plot is is a jokey thing. Um, I, I, <laughs> I really doubt that... Uh, uh, the author believes in monarchy as as a centuries stable institute, um, and, but he's talking about you know not just not just monarchies. He's talking about economic systems and uh, <clears throat> uh, the question of industrialization of society and depersonification of individuals as they're all cogs and machines and that's a serious topic he's just addressing it in a light-hearted way that lets lets him slip it in as just a fun story you know but i th- i do think he is his own author insert in the main character here but with all the smoking and the the manipulation it's like he's created this world this ga- a galaxy right he and does he, like to write characters that manipulate a lot <laughs> that are cleverer than all the yeah. other people in the room it's because yeah. he he thinks he is and we think he is too because we're reading his stuff and we're saying that's clever there's even the line about uh turning uh the rye into whiskey right and the minister says oh that's so clever right well <laughs> yeah I guess, but the 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 point of the story seems to be like they are in a very fine balance. Everything works perfectly. Everybody's happy, but clearly there's like the ossification is is very strong, and the incompetence level is very strong. And the solution is to is to promote the incompetent. Like I don't think he can take it seriously, even though he has taken it. He ha- he's having it both ways. He's taken it seriously. That's why he's created this very interesting story. But he's also saying that this is impossible. And so it, it, it I mean, maybe I'm overanalyzing it, but, uh, I think, uh, it's, it, it's, it's funny. I tweeted, I, I bet Paul didn't see it. Um, I tweeted, uh, H. Beam Piper is the working man's, uh, science fiction Tolkien. And some people agreed with that. And I'm not sure what I mean Wait, by it, other than yeah. What other do you than, mean by that? I was reading this story. And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense because Tolkien span up this spun up this whole uh, secondary world, right? With uh, potatoes and uh, pipeweed and Saurons going back generations, right? All these el- he built elvish. Um, wh- why did he do all that? Uh, because he was interested in it. Oh, and it happens to sell. Right. That's that's good, too. Um, I think that that's sort of what was going on with H.B. Piper is he's capable of spinning up all this stuff. Um, and, yeah, it, we're told that he killed himself because he thought he was uh, in financial trouble because his, his editor died or no, his agent died or whatever. And he didn't know. Um, I think the truth is he just really was interested in this stuff and it shows. And he's, he spent all his time writing up these interesting secondary worlds, 
in a way that are different from other science fiction writers. Like, when you look at Philip K. Dick, how many of his stories are set in the same universe? Two? Uh, two? <laughs> I think that's right. It. Yeah, he has a Doc Labyrinth series that runs two stories, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, most... then he also, but he has also, also has uh, Nick and the Glimmerung and... Um... Yeah, but one, one was a dry yeah. run for the other, right? Uh, but, but they're still set in the same... Uh... In in uh, sort of they're not they're they're set they use the same background but the Silmarillion in that case was not published until way after he was dead right so he's just using it as a Silmarillion and it, it's interesting because if we compare him to the other science fiction writers who were contemporary to him besides Philip K Dick um, he's a lot like Asimov isn't he a lot of Asimov yeah. in here. Yeah, but his, foundation-esque, yeah. But, yeah, in Galactic Empire and robots and all that stuff. But his his uh, political and uh, his politics is different, but also his, his attitude, uh, I guess it's just non-academic-y attitude, not, non-academic-y approach. He's not at the center of power. Asimov was a professor, right, of uh, chemistry. This guy was a night watchman. Um, who else? Larry Niven and Heinlein both have their shared, you know, their consistent universes. But Larry Niven was born into riches, right? And uh, Heinlein was an officer. H. Beam Piper is not a rich guy. He was like a poor guy. And so it, it's, he's a lot like those other guys, but his his situation like he's not a he's not an officer he's not a uh, professor he has no authority his only authority comes from the fact that he's really smart and uh he's read a lot and he's creative and so the, it's very strange to see him in this emperor position um because he's having it uh both ways he's saying i could be emperor but also emperors are silly because I've read the histories and that's not actually how it works. It's not how any of this works. It's like that. It's like that gift. Yeah. But he is really engaged with the idea that like, this is what makes it science fiction in a way that, you know, uh, when you look at Tolkien's, uh, middle earth, it's not, it's, it's utter fantasy because technology never has any change, never changes anything. There, swords 10,000 years ago, swords 10,000 years later, right? Here, it's all about technology. And he said, let's presume that we can get to a stable state with, with tech and science, which is at the core of this story, right? It's all about those last decimal places and we're, we aren't really, we have no enemies to fight. And so when it comes down to that, what, what are the students protesting is that maybe there's something possibly to do now, finally, some barbarian lands to conquer, right? And the emperor's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I, I, I do question, um, the geography of this <laughs> galactic empire as far as that there's really, uh, is it a matter of, we don't have no worlds to conquer over. Just is it the size of the world? China, China not expanding, right? I, I mean, I mean, I mean, there's, I mean, they're not 
they don't control, control the entire galaxy. So there's got no. It's shaped did, like a pork chop. Stuff. The ga- their galactic empire is shaped like a pork, pork chop. So so I mean, there's there's space to there's space to go, but why they aren't? I wonder if it is a communications issue. Um, and just a matter of the logistics of trying to expand, and maybe this um this um Ansible that they're going to create will help with that. I'm. I'm also now thinking of a game I mentioned before, Omnitrend's Universe, where in that universe, the um, the Earth polity was basically stopped expanding because of just the limits of being able to go in a particular direction. So they found that the device to let them go to a, another section of the galaxy to expand there. So well, you don't want to let your empire expand beyond the limits of your control. Uh, right. uh, if you don't have communication, you don't have control. Yes, true. Um, but see- pork chop is not also like a pie. Like they haven't got a, uh, a quarter of the galaxy. They've got a pork chop section of the galaxy, right? So there's, I think there's some struggle with like motivation, uh, and struggle yeah, with the sure. top heaviness and, and thinking about like what, what it all means. Like, uh, this is a really interesting story and I, uh, I listened to it very, Unusually, I, I started listening to it when I went to sleep and it infected my dreams and I had a lot of really bizarro, awesome dreams based on this story. But the thing is, is those, uh, those, the central idea inside of here is that if you level off to a certain level of technology, then, and you, you don't have new territories to expand into, then everything can become stable. I don't know if that's true. I think it's probably not true, but that's his thesis. And when we look at our own society and say, what, why is society changing? It is because ultimately technological changes have great effects that we can't foresee. Uh, The classic example is the birth control pill, right? It changes uh, people's relations to other people, uh, the water empires Paul's always going on about, right? Uh, that is changes the relation, it allows stratification is the theory, right? Mm-hmm. Social stratif- stratifications, granaries. Uh, it's all the stuff you get in civilization, right? Um, <laughs> I'm not uh, which, playing Civ, Jesse. No, no, but this game is, or this uh, story it, is. And it's, it's saying the playing Star- there are no, the, there's no technologi- technology trees. And I remember when you played at least a certain level of Civ, it would say future technology one, future technology two. And then you realize the game has run out of ideas, right? You can keep studying these texts. Yeah. So this is saying, um, techno technological change is what changes society. And I think that, that, that probably true. I think that that is probably well, true. I, I mean, to a, I, I think that's true, Bessie. And it, it, it just like, includes I'm thinking food. Of like David Graeber's uh, essay, um, and he later it later informed his book on bureaucracy, right? So he had this question like, why why are none of the technologies we were promised ever? Jetpacks emerge. The jetpacks, the flying, flying cars, cars, going back mm-hmm. to the moon, all these kinds of things. And, and the answer he kind of gave was bureaucracy, just kind of becomes a burden to to any real development, any real change, right? And I, and I think 
Yeah, there are technologies that change things. You mentioned the birth control bill. That was like the 60s. Mm-hmm. Has there been a technology that's really changed things in a yes. fundamental way since? Yes. Of course. Which one? Well, the internet. I mean, uh, internet? Oh, like, yeah. That hasn't, yeah. That hasn't got us to the moon. That doesn't got us to uh, our... Our, our post-scarcity egalitarian. Oh, I'm so close, man. socialism, right? I'm so close. Okay. I, I, I'm doing on, experiments on to I'll, show I'll grant that. On, but, yeah, yeah the, the lawyers are there to make sure that's not going to go too far. They are, and that is that is absolutely the case. The, and the, I, I do think Graeber had a point that just the system gets in a way, like the ideology, sure. the institutions get in a way of of the promise of technology. That sounds right. Is that right. in here though? Um, I think it, I think he's not, no, I think quite... there is, there is, a, like how well, to it... put it, a Byzantine state, uh, a state that's not capable yes. of transforming technology into, a, into a change, right? Even with the, the potential of post-scarcity, there's still, Divvying up work, right? Well, uh, well they Tax actually policy, have, and there's some really interesting stuff there about that. About yeah, no, they what are to do with scarcity. The work. But in, you still in, need to all work, the robots. Right? You still need to justify people going. Yes, but that's different. Day. That's different because some of the work is hilariously in here, and this is why he's so smart. Um, is that you know your job is to vote. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get paid so you can vote properly. <laughs> um, and uh, the communist planet is pretty fun, right? When the guy from the communist planet shows up, and he's got a, he's got a, a, a he didn't carry a weapon, but if he did, it would have been a slide rule. <laughs> yes, he's making I, fun you of everything. Yes, but uh, you know, and then talking about how. You know, the, their secret police wouldn't be called the secret police. He's saying everybody's the same. They're just all different in, in the tiny little details. These guys look like terriers. Those guys, you know, are this. But everybody has robots. They're kind of all in the cul-de-sac, right? They're, yes. They're, they're all, all their stuck. Own and, and the solution is to promote the incompetent, which is, you know, it's stating facts about what's happening, but it, that's not... I mean... Maybe if I was running a big corporation, promoting the incompetent would seem like the the good thing to do. But is it good for the company or is it good for me personally? Yeah, in a way, isn't that kind of the inverse of foundation? I haven't read that in a long time. But yeah, I haven't read somehow it like we're going either. to revive like a real empire. That's... And they're uh, tackling the same problem, right? But here it's our progress. <laughs> like change is going to come if we just sort of explode the contradictions and let it be exposed like make charles the king and see what happens <laughs> <laughs> charles three <laughs> what are you um, gonna say this, Trish? uh actually makes me think of uh, a book that addresses you know promoting incompetence for statecraft reasons that is mm-hmm. a very serious book which is Robert Graves's Claudius the God, which is the sequel mm, to mm-hmm. I, Claudius, which concerns, you know, after Caligula is assassinated and they make Claudius emperor, whether he wants to be or not, mm-hmm. um, he engages in a long-term plan to go back to the Roman Republic by uh, 
uh, engendering revolt by uh, promoting an accelerationist people. Yeah, to so, de- uh, right accelerate the uh, what he thinks of as inevitable re- revolt by promoting incompetent people and uh, uh, you know putting in silly rules and stuff. Um, and uh, although governing well in other ways, but uh, let's see, he sends his son away, uh, uh, supposedly because of, I think, Messalina's infidelities. But um, uh, in reality, he loves and trusts his son, and he thinks that his son, once once uh, things get really horrible, his son is going to come back and lead a revolt and restore the Republic. And yeah, that didn't happen, did it? <laughs> it didn't happen, no. It's all very sad because you know what's going to happen, which yeah. is that, uh, you know, he'll get assassinated too, and so will his son, and, you know, things will keep getting worse in the in the Roman Empire uh, as far as rights and things go. You know, things will just keep degrading, but empire will stay for centuries um so you know that is a very serious book (laughs) there are humorous moments in it of course but uh so that made me think of it you know people thinking that they're smart thinking that they can control and guide events and uh can you really Eh, you have to be really really smart uh and also lucky for people to do what you think they're going to do (laughs) Now, that makes me think of uh, the the other guy who I think a lot more people would say is the Tolkien of science fiction, and that would be Frank Herbert and Dune, right? Obviously, we've got a galactic empire, we've got dukes and you yeah, know, yeah, plans yeah, within but, plans and wheels yeah, within wheels and assassination attempts. And it's half cheap because Dune is very much a epic fantasy novel in space rather than a space opera movie. Uh, so, I don't think that that's. Correct. I think that is extremely correct. I um, think that the I reason mean, that's not correct is because it's based on technology rather than. It's not the trappings of technology, but uh, uh, I think Paul's essentially right there. I, 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 well, I, I, let's I, I, let's talk about it for a sec because okay. think about this: we've got uh, a galactic empire here. They have interstellar travel. They've got uh, kings on every planet. Uh, except for the communist planet where they call him something else. Uh, he's the first man or whatever. Um, there's a, a manipulator at the, at the emperor's level and everybody else is trying to manipulate too. The emperor is really good at it in this story. Emperor's a little worse at it in the other story. Both are about technology. Sometimes technology is not, uh, is not, um, wheels and airplanes. It's drugs. Right. And this doesn't go in that direction. It goes in the regular direction of, you know, physics and uh, robots and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it's saying things have leveled off. Whereas in the Dune universe, they're still dealing with the effects of the technology, which is the life extension drug that also changes your brain radically. Fantasy stories. Somebody getting a ton of noise from somebody. gone now um fantasy stories tend to go the opposite direction and they have like tolkien uh no technological change the only thing that changes a new evil coming from the east or i guess you could say Sauron making orcs is <laughs> some technological change right i uh, air conditioner ah yes okay um so 
so I, I think you're saying it has the trappings of fantasy, and I would agree. So does this. But it doesn't feel like fantasy because it is so far from... At, first of all, it's published in Astounding, and it has tech everywhere. Not a lot of robots in uh, in Dune, and they got rid of the AI computers, right? So it doesn't feel like it, but it actually, the tech there is the drugs and also the you know, yoga, all the uh, Bene Gesserit yoga stuff. So it is very science fiction, even though it well, isn't. But, 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 but the, the, the Bene Gesserit techniques, the Menta techniques, a lot of that can be seen as... As having the cast of magic to them, I mean. I guess you could interpret it that way. I, 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 I mean. I mean the the psychic stuff in here is magic too, in a certain sense, right? Right, right. But the psychic stuff here is 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 as we were saying at the beginning. Uh, it basically, is just is just there to make John Campbell happy. That's, Probably, that's, yeah. I mean, I mean, it doesn't really nobody doesn't affect the plot sensible reason thinks it, it doesn't makes affect sense, any, right? Any, uh, uh, it's in, it's important to the part of the story, but it's not central. I agree. But, but I mean, Dune, Dune, Dune's story is not a is not a return to the past. It's not a diminishment, but it is kind of of the rise of a god, which is definitely not a science fiction idea at all. Oh, I think you're wrong about that. The the Slan is the rise of a god, a god species, right? And um, Golden Man, same story. These are science. The, the, so I, I, uh, definitely a science fiction. It's story. eugenics. Eugenics is is a science fiction story. It's not a good one, but it is a science fiction story. Okay, so oh, so, so the eugenics in Dune is science. You can't really be arguing that it's a fantasy in space no, no, because but, it isn't. But right? but but. but, but but it, it has that it has that cast to it. Well, it I, feels I, like that. But I, I, what I, I, makes I, I, it different? I, I, it even has a, it even has the ultimate argument. It even has a map. Most science fiction novels don't have a map. Dune has a map. Therefore, it's a fantasy. Okay, that that's me being derivative and taking this. But I mean, most science fiction novels don't have maps. Dune has a map. Dune, <laughs> Dune, Dune is cast is, is is being cast in a mold as a fantasy. Okay, maybe it's not a fantasy, but I think Purple was very deliberately evoking and well, evoking epic. fantasy for for his purposes in a way that say I mean I mean yes it's epic, but um, Foundation is epic and definitely not fantasy. What What's interesting here is the tension between uh, lack of technology and uh, the effects of technology are really what makes fantasy or science fiction, right? Um, Okay, okay, so that Dune, um, there's a tension between trying to keep from going to the technology, the forbidden technologies that caused problems 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's a very fantasy idea, not a science fictional idea. I mean, science fiction is about progress and change, whereas in the Dune universe, they're afraid of the thinking machines coming back on X, as you, as you will recall. Mm-hmm. I'm and just saying that... So, 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 so I think the breeding I, program is at the center of the story. Um, it is one of the centers of the story. The other center, of course, is the political manipulations of the emperor, who has no idea about the breeding. But that's program. not technology. Try, that's not technology. That's sociology. But that's also yeah. very fantastic. That's also very fantasy. I mean, a king, well, it happens I, in here too, right? So yes, that the, what I'm saying is that the, Dune is science fiction in the same oh, way oh, that this is. 
But the platoon is very they much both have, a lot from fantasy that this not, this story is not. I understand why you you feel that, but but they're both at core about technology mm. and science. What, we we did three shows on Dune, so I don't I think we're going to rehash did, some of the stuff we did. We did four shows on Dune. <laughs> four shows on four shows on four shows on four shows on Dune. Yeah. Um. Okay, but anyway, and I'm pretty sure it's a science fiction book. It is a science I understand why why you make fantasy. it take a lot more for fantasy than you're willing than that I think you well think. but uh, I think we remember I started uh, but remember I started by saying in science fiction the guy who makes you think of Tolkien is Herbert right 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 and that's what yeah but so I I think you need a pure example because Herbert's much you know, Herbert takes too much cues from fantasy to to uh, follow your thesis um, I don't I don't agree I. I we, um, we, we should probably talk more about this story. <laughs> we should probably talk about more about this story. Yes, but uh, is there is there a lot more left to say? Because I I found it to be very interesting, but very light and very full of ideas. And more, it's almost like it's a it's a his Hyborian Age essay for his universe than it is a uh, a story in itself. Because it is just a day in the life of an emperor. And you know, Trish is saying it's it's very important day. I'm like, we, I mean, we're grading on a scale here, right? <laughs> because all the days be- previous, it's not like any like at the end of the day, he's still smoking his cigarettes and robot. Like nobody's nobody's. It isn't like what happened to the Queen last week, <laughs> right? Where they changed emperors or anything like that. It's pretty. It's pretty simple. And yet he's, he's got a lot of, a lot of guys. I mean, what's funny is you start reading it, you don't, you say, when is the plot going to start? And it keeps starting over and over again, right? And then he satisfies us at the end by saying, oh, well, basically all of these things were the plot. It's a kind of a surprising story structure, right? Oh, okay, yes, it is a surprising story. So it's not what I expected going into the story. No, no, I hadn't read this before. I've read. A I have few not Vipers, read. Yeah, so. I've, I've, I've read. I've read most of the Paratime. I've read. And I was wondering Halloween. about. I was wondering about when the title was going to come in as well, right? Minister. Not till ministry. the end. Right, doesn't come in till the end, and then we find out who the minister of disturbance was. Is the king <laughs> or the emperor? Which is, I was like, oh, that's interesting. His job is not to be the state, like, that's what they say about why we, we need a, a king or a queen in Canada, is because it's a stabilizing influence. Like, I guess she doesn't visit much, that's good. <laughs> but, <laughs> what? what the what? No, I mean, that's the, you need a, a head of state, I guess, for reasons, I don't. Uh, no, well, we well, do, but I, well, which influential heads of state, kings, emperors that we know were forces of stability? Uh, well, I mean, uh, the argument is Queen Elizabeth, right? She, whenever the colonies are wanting to kick, get kicked out, she well, doesn't. Well, she's not really an actor, right? Well, that's like, the thing, right? Is she isn't, but, and that's why she, in Canada, it's like I don't have strong feelings. Uh, for or against her, other than yeah, she's a horrible human being. But um, you would because say she didn't that affect that our was a politics. Period of, I mean, of decline at least. 
Yeah, it's interesting because the personal fortunes of the family have with survived, weathered all the European drama of the 20th century, right? I mean, they're still around. There's a king in 2022. This is funny, right? My whole life, uh, that queen has been, uh, I've been her subject. It's ridiculous. But, um, I, I was saying before she died, basically, it'll be interesting to see what happens because when you don't think about it, the queen's just on your money. But now I'm going to have fucking Charles on my money? Come on. Charles, you got to be kidding me. But ridiculous, right? Like, if this, uh, the Albertans aren't going to like that. I'm not going to like that. So, well, it's possible things, it might be the last generation for the emperor. And yeah, she, yeah, but she, these, these are people who are being, pretty, they're like significant in the media. I'd, I'd like to yeah. hear a case of their significance beyond that. Even their wealth, if you consider, like, yeah, they have not the, the richest estates, but, but yeah, that's all managed by parliament, right? By this point. Uh, they have like yeah. their stipend. They're like, yeah, that goes back public, to like public Florida's dole. They're on the dole. It? Yeah, yeah. So they're not even he, that rich compared to like the emperor the, here is not symbolic in the story, yeah. right? He's he is, actually has some. He has power, a lot of right? power. Yeah, but it's it's much more like so the first Elizabeth era. In she the had era a lot more power when emperors were significant. When kings were significant, who is known that outside of like maybe historians or nerds like like Paul, <laughs> Roman Empire nerds <laughs> that know these people? Like we know Augustus, right? Well, yeah, obviously not a force of stability, right? Someone who nope. totally transformed the system. I, I, I mean, but, like, but he made stability for a while. Right? I, I, yes. I, will, I will argue. Emperor Hadrian was a force of stability because before he, his predecessor Trajan had conquered Mesopotamia, then promptly died, and Hadrian thought that makes the empire way too long to defend. I'm just going to bend in Mesopotamia, build walls everywhere, and that's right, and 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 basically reinforce what what we've got. So build Hadrian, that wall between Scotland right, exactly. and England. He, build and that, built wall. that wall. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> good emperors can be stabilizing forces while they reign, but then we also have bad emperors. And okay, if you have, I think what makes them bad is that they're not stable, right? And rule for decades, they can be more stabilizing than a democracy that changes every time there's an election. But, uh, you know, are they ultimately long-term stabilizing forces? I mean, over centuries, uh, there's, yeah. I can't see much evidence of that because. No, there is no evidence of a long-term the, dynasty. I guess let me put it away. Do they show up in the, the people who show up in the ninth grade history books are, are chaos agents. Okay. So, yeah, I can uh, see that. They are, they get in the history because they affect change. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean. I mean. I mean. You don't read about. I mean. Oh, like. Like. For example. Okay. So Roman emperors have. I'm. A, I'm a history nerd. So I'm going to ask the three of you. Have you <laughs> ever heard of the emperor Antonius Pius? Yes. Mm-mm. I don't yeah, think so. I, maybe. But I don't. I can't say too much about him. And the reason yeah, why. I'll, 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 and the, right. the reason why you don't know anything about him. Trish is a history nerd, so she knows about him. <laughs> it's because he had the most boring reign of 
all the emperors. He lasted for like 20 years and nothing happened. No revolts, nothing. It just to his credit, probably to his credit, exactly. <laughs> he just kept things on an even keel, and nothing happened. So nobody knows the crap about him. He just kept, he just kept the th- the ship of state going. Do 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 do. I just and keep thinking about actually Churchill the being. I, I'm thinking of here. Well, you can talk about Churchill if you want. Well, I was I was just going to say like First, Churchill is a chaos agent. Else. That's because he's so yeah. famous, right? He's a chaos, and literally, um, you know, he's setting up commando units and. You know, flying over to the United States, trying to make this war happen, right? Also, also remember, in the early incarnation, Churchill was responsible for Gallipoli. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say he. I mean, he's fucking things up there too, but That's um, my point. he wasn't in charge. Exactly. Literally in the same way, that campaign. And yeah, yeah, it should have ended his political career forever, but it didn't. Yeah. I, well, George W. Bush, right? <laughs> Chaos agent. I'm well, thinking of more maybe uh, maybe not so relevant to the story, but maybe relevant to the conversation is an emperor of the Ming of the later Ming named uh, well, Wan Li was his imperial name. Right? He was I forget his given name. He was the Wan Li emperor. He was one of the later Ming emperors. Ruled until 1620, and he had a very long reign. He was like emperor for like 40, 50 years or something, right? But at one point when he was still a fairly young man in his middle age, he just retired from being emperor. Um, did they, um, Have you heard of this guy? He, he just just started hanging out with the concubines and stuff. And I, he like, re- re- would refuse to go to meetings and just Seems said, I'm not going to govern anymore. And, and he's a significant emperor because he chose not to rule. And that led many say to the fall of the Ming Empire. Mm. Because the the state was just really not capable to approach the like the like the little ice age and the other crises of the seventeenth century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the and, agenda for the emperor yeah. in this story is full, right? He's got a full day ahead yeah. of him and he wants mm-hmm. to take that break, go spend time with his wife and his kid and the kids he does say at one point he, he wants the robot to take over, right? Yes, he does. He wants a robot emperor. Yeah, he, he, so he can go fishing with his son. Right. So uh, that would be a... Uh, <laughs> I, like I, I, believe, I believe that's another Asimov story. <laughs> well, that, that, that's part of Asimov's whole future history. So, right. Yeah. So it's fun it, because we think of Asimov as one of the big three or whatever. Um, but uh, I think H. Beam Piper is terrific um he's weird and odd and he's having it both ways here but it's more commentary from the sidelines uh, than it is like here's my grand plan like i don't think paul krugman's gonna suddenly become an h beam piper uh fanboy no but, be- but if he ever but he, if, i wouldn't be surprised if he read him uh possibly possibly i don't know he doesn't drop the name drop h beam piper in it. Uh, very but, few but, do. But who does? <laughs> well, few, few do, right? Is the point. I mean, and, and, and that's the tragedy of the, the amount of his war and also him um, have having his career so tragically cut short. Mm. It's interesting. I, I'm looking forward to uh, maybe we can do Junkyard Planet slash uh, Cosmic Computer because somebody uh, wanted us to do that. and I'm willing to do it, obviously. Yeah, it's a novel, um, so I don't. I haven't read it, but uh, it should it should have been serialized and then 
or released as a paperback. Might might have been an ace double. It might be seven hours. I'm not sure. It's on a LibriVox, anyways. Uh, Trish, did you have something to say in there that uh, got cut off by uh, mutings or Jesse or, talking or Paul talking? <laughs> no, I think I've I've uh, made most of the points that I was interested in. Okay. Well, I, I do have I, to say this is yeah. the first uh, Piper story I read. I didn't go to earlier episodes. That oh, really? Exploring some of his work. And what do you think? I'm very interested in him. He's interesting. Uh, at right? first, I'm like this, like, like some of the themes here are so similar to <laughs> some of the stuff Dick was writing at the time, which really, mm-hmm. well, Dick got to some of these themes early '50s. Yeah, a little early. '58, but. Um, they seem to be having a connected conversation on some of these issues of empire yeah. and, and, but this, the way it's done here, like Dick would never do it this way. No. It's, oh no. His point of view no would means. be the, would be maybe like the janitor or something. In the <laughs> well, no, we have, we have a, a very tired robot emperor in a story we did. Um, well, with the, the last of the masters, last of the masters. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, his, but focus, I don't think Dick would be interested in like, all these meetings. <laughs> no, it is a it is a very odd story structure because it it, it is a day in the life of the I emperor. Think it's really well done. I think that's what I like about this. Uh, oh, he's yeah. good. There's so he's much good. going on. It's like it would be like if the West Wing didn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what's interesting about the West Wing is it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't say I'm science fiction. It says I am a reflection of the reality we wish we had. And, yeah. and, and here it's all about, well, it's set in the future. So it's what's going to happen when we have, uh, robots. And the answer is everybody's still going to be smoking like 4,000 years <laughs> in the future. Cigarettes. Wow. Okay. That's one way to go. Right. Um, what's funny is cigarettes are a technology. <laughs> coffee is a technology, right? Um, he's still drinking cigarettes and coffee. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, but also like the, you know, the delivery system right now, vaping is a new technology that we have to deal with and we, we won't have fully started wrestling with it for another couple of decades. And then some weird things going to happen, right? And people are going to, have some sort of reaction to it. That's the amazing thing about science fiction is it's about engaging with the change of technology. So when we think of like the Roman empire and we think of Augustus and Caesar and, uh, they're the same guy. <laughs> well, there's and, two Caesar. And yeah, yeah. After a while, I mean, Caesar Julius Caesar. Title. Yeah. Julius Caesar and Augustus. And the thing is, is there can be intellectual technologies, right? And one of them is emperor, right? Okay, we're doing emperors now. Remember, remember that amazing move that Napoleon did? He says, no, 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 I'm not a king. I'm an emperor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he t- took the Russia, the French Revolution and just judo flipped it and made it so that he was in charge. And then what's he do? He proceeds to try and liberate the rest of Europe from kings. And then well, he puts liberate. his own, yeah, and then puts his own brother on the throne of Spain. Right. I mean, he was trying. He, he he basically was trying to create a whole imperial dynasty. Yeah, it's like but, yes. straight up. Uh, ideas are technologies because they get inside your head and control your thoughts. 
and said, well, damn, I didn't want to do that, but I found myself buying whatever product this is I'm holding in my hand, and damn, I'll probably buy another one next week because they convinced me that, uh, what's the the Starbucks seasonal drink these days? Pumpkin spice latte? Pumpkin mm-hmm. spice latte. <laughs> right. I, I, I saw people abbreviating it, uh, P... PSL? Uh, L, yeah. I'm like, what? No. <laughs> it's a, yeah, he's, he's a big fan of the PSLs. I'm like, no! <laughs> Not all technologies are good for us right away. Anyways, we have to get a handle on them. And, uh, this, this is a story that's saying eventually, and I think this is true, um, technologies mature, right? Like, uh, I had a conversation years ago on Twitter with um, Brian Alexander, who's a very interesting guy, right? Um, and we were talking about uh, uh, sort of the matured techno- technological whatever it is. So one uh, good example was the AK-47. AK-47 is based on a Nazi gun. And that Nazi gun is based on World War One guns and, you know, going back and back. Ever since then, between uh, World War Two or 1947, right after World War II, up to today, there's been a lot of generations of guns. But they're all essentially working on a couple of different systems, and and they're, it's already mature, so you don't really actually need, like, the AR-15 American version of, you know, the equivalent of the AK-47. Works differently, um, but it's so, such a mature technology that um, changing it to, like... There's now rail, they're not, they're coil guns, basically, uh, electric, electric weapons. They're not, there's no firearm involved. It's just a, a slug going down a rail, right? With a bunch of capacitors shooting it out. And there's, it's a very immature technology, so it's not going to be adopted by militaries or police or anything like that. But it's not in the constitution. You could have <laughs> a rail gun, Paul. Uh, a fully automatic railgun, and it's not a firearm. There's no f- fire is inv- involved. So you know whether the uh, I was gonna say NRA. No, it's the F. What's the uh, FT firearms tobacco? What's the other one? Oh, oh ATF. Yeah. Oh, ATF the, the, alcohol, yeah. tobacco, and, and firearms. firearms. Might try and classify railguns as uh, is it their Gauss rifles. I don't know. Anyways. It's a real technology that's not mature yet. Once technologies mature to a certain point, the iteration change, like com- internal combustion engines, basically we, we got that fixed in the 90s. That's leveled off and really anything since then has been just like tweaks, right? We can add a h- hybrid engine next to it. That idea of technology leveling off and becoming stable uh, sailboats aren't radically changing. They've been, ar- they've been pretty stable since the 19th century, right? And that, this story is saying absolutely tech can stable off and robots can't replace the emperor. So any kind of interesting change, like, wow, maybe we can do faster than light communication. This would be like a massive revolution, right? Uh, possibly in the future, but it doesn't happen in this story. It's like, it's supporting the Ministry of Disturbance to... It's cool. He's smart. And when when I was looking at the reviews on Goodreads, they're sort of, you know, every Goodreads review is all over the place when it's had a few. But it's in this sort of three... 
out of five, whatever. Thing is, is it's very hard to review a story like this because it's not supposed to be entertaining only. It is entertaining. You could take it as a light thing, but I think it's almost like a manifesto, right? It's like, these are the things I would like to talk about. And so he does. He ends up writing uh, a whole book on, or a couple books on Little Fuzzy, right? And he put the foundation for that in here. You put the seed of that in here, yes. Right? Well, the, uh, he says the, um, uh, no, foundation works better because it's the Asimov thing. <laughs> well played. <laughs> but no, uh, he says they, they can't, they, they can't make fire. And what was the other thing? They can't talk, maybe? Fire, control F. Um, fire and. Oh, here it is. Under the talk and build a fire rule. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. The, but the, the secret is to bang the rocks together, guys. <laughs> um, Jesse yeah, didn't get the, the other, joke, neither did I. I get, no, I got it. I got, got it. it. Uh, firearms, um, another interest. Evan, you weren't on our um, our uh, Murder in the Gun Room show? No, I don't think so. Good book. Uh, it's a, a locked room mystery with a... Uh, this um, H.P. and Piper guy was a gun collector and a gun nut and shot himself with a gun. Um, and that's a locked room mystery in which a uh, uh, lawyer becomes a private detective. He has a private detective agency as well. Um, solving a firearms-related murder uh, who was... Or it was a firearms collector-related firearms murder. So he's really into firearms, cigarettes... Trish, remember back in uh, the the one you narrated, um, all the smoking? Omnilingual, yes, definitely. Omnilingual, yes. Right, they had to be careful about their cigarettes because of the oxygen filters that they had. But they didn't (laughs) just be smoking, no, no. (laughs) And smoking. It it is straight out of, like, he's writing about the things he's interested in. And, And that makes him much connected to Philip K. Dick, right? It's you know, you want to know what Philip K. Dix thinks? He thinks about his wife a lot. How mean she is. <laughs> How cruel she is. <laughs> well, Why she want that abortion? There's an argument for leaving mundane things like, oh, sorry, uh, like cigarettes uh, uh, in your stories and not overthinking that too much in order to focus the attention on the changes that you are trying to talk about. You know, leave yeah. some uh, real world cigarettes or alcohol or whatever in your story also so work great in red focus on your plot and yeah. not be too out of their depth yeah and it, it, it grounds us oh, i like this emperor guy i don't like kings paul oh yeah this emp- king- emperor paul no, 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 is no, 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 a no, pleasant no, fellow no, no yeah. with kings oh, no duke author. no dukes dukes no kings no uh, barons. Don't like any of those guys. The, somebody uh, retweeted uh, when uh, Queen Elizabeth died. Retweeting this guy named Lord Sugar, who's on Twitter as Lord Sugar, and he's he's like he's part of the you know UK's version of the Senate what we have in Canada. It's the House of Lords, and he's he's like quoting people who are mad at him, um, and uh, saying. Yeah, you scumbags are all jealous. And it was like the guys like taking pictures of your yacht. <laughs> you, 
<laughs> it's like, this is what they think of you, right? These, and I, I did a search on that guy's account, Lord Trigger's account. He uses scum a lot. It's like, it's what he thinks. He thinks all the poors are scum. It's like, wow. Can you imagine that being your government? <laughs> like that guy, he didn't get elected. He didn't get appointed. His, his dad's 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 dad, 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 uh, you know, did some duty for Queen Elizabeth the first or something, got, got a barony out of it. Now he gets to be <laughs> in government. Fucking hilarious in 2022. Well, yeah. Um, um n- n- now, now that I was, now that I mentioned that Paul Anderson, so I'm wondering if there's an audiobook of it. Oh, no truth with kinks? Yeah. I think I don't... there was a long time ago. It might have been abridged, but, um, maybe not. Which is sad because it's only a novella, so I don't know whether they would abridge it. Because no, I don't that think would it was. Inter- that would be an interesting story to come to follow up on this one because that one that one has um, espers, which is a much more uh, prominent thing, and has interesting things to say about um, the tyranny of uh, feudalism, of feudal so- structures. I just found a what looks like a downloadable version here. I mean, I'd be very up for doing more Anderson, but you kind of knew that. Song, Charlie! Give us a song! Yay, Charlie! Sounds like it's... The whole mess was drunk. Sounds like a story. Um, well, uh, I'll investigate and let you know. Go go investigate. Go go, yeah. go forth and investigate. I've read it before. Um, I don't remember it very well, but... Is it, uh... Is it Fantasy on a Planet? Uh, no, it's it's post it's post apocalyptic America. Uh, okay, so no. I remember sailboat. Um, that might be in the same collection. Um, yeah, I think you're thinking of a uh, sailboat. We, we also, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yes, I'm thinking of a sailboat. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. Yeah, so uh, cool. Um, who's in for the Cosmic Computer? I'm into the Cosmic Computer. All right. That's one. I'll go into the Google Doc and have a look. Uh, right. Cosmic Computer. Also called Junkyard Planet. Are you on the doc already, Paul? Or the spreadsheet? I, I am. I'm on the other tab. I was on the other okay. tab updating the... Updating the count. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just want to make sure we have the latest numbers. Paul's at 264. Sky at 177. Mice and Evan are tied at 100. I mean, these are the only ones that are released. So I think Evan's pulled ahead at this point. Marissa's at 96. Jim's at 70. The late uh, Jenny Colvin's at 64. Julie's at She's 59. never going up unless I Trish, find Trish is at 37 and rising. <laughs> you are. You're, 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 so, you're, you're moving up the ranks, Trish. Oh, uh, Jesse, please add me to the Black Stranger discussion by Robert E. Howard. Pop yourself in there or have Paul pop you in. What did you say, Evan? I will pop. I will pop. Doom and Key. Doom and Key. Well, I'm interested in. 
Yeah, um, I'm interested in pirates. Wait, so Dumaki smugglers, right? It's yeah, smugglers. It's just backdrop. It's just like the deep. Well, I want to hear what you think about um that new one, Fairy Tale. But it also looks long. But it, I, I was holding it in my hand at Costco, and it was. I went to the was, bookstore looking for it. It's not. It's not available at the. It's twenty twenty two bucks or something at the books at the Costco. So it was. Yeah, um, I'd buy it at the bookstore if I had it. I'm I'm doing a King read through on my own anyways, and I'm up to two thousand nine. What wasn't there something else? Um, Blaze. Uh, yeah, that's the Blaze late, is the Bachman one. Yeah, so I'm. So that's gonna, like the lost Bachman book. So the story behind that. that one is, it he had written, he knew it, he didn't forget it or anything, but it was like sort of lost, and then someone found it like in an archive or something, hmm. and he published it. He published it under Bachman, but obviously by then everyone knew it was King. Like 2008 um, or so. Let's let's do it. Which is uh, it's not bad. It's, I think it's it's got some value. So um, this next... is more up your more your style yeah. than like Doom. Let's McKee. do that. Yeah, Doom McKee is. So uh, we have two slots available. It's it's a, it's a it's a meal. Thirtieth of October, or the week and after is the sixth of November. Yeah, they're, they're the same for me. Okay. Paul and Trish, do you care? Um, well, we have the thirtieth versus... of October. Can I? I, I yeah, don't put know. it in. I don't know. No, no. I was. Go- I don't think it's a Jesse book. I was going to try to argue for a night in the lonesome October. I don't, I don't think that's a Jesse book. Zelazny. Yes, Zelazny. Yeah. Talk about that. I would so love to talk about ten. No, oh, no, no. Be what's the month after ten? Eleven. Oh shit! 11. I think I fucked up. Month after ten. I think I fucked this up. <laughs> Hold on, I, September. I, 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 I think you October messed up your if you don't remember. Yeah, no, 11-6. There we go. I mean, October 30th would be the perfect day to talk about a night in the lonesome October. It won't come out until seven months later, so you have to No, but, but we've been discussing it. it during the month that it takes place. Because oh, it, uh, it takes place every day of the month of October. Every <sighs> every chapter is a day in the, day in the month. So, yeah, how can we, how can, how can we convince you to I can convince you that a night in the lonesome October is something you should cover, Jesse. Uh, it was a most a memorial year, I believe. A most memorial. Yeah, it's from uh, the titles from um, a poem. Okay, right, and, and okay, so basically, it's about. Um, it's got notes of Lovecraft. It's got characters. I've got the cover from- on my desktop. Okay, you have the cover on your desktop. So, okay, so why why aren't we scheduling this for October 30th, then, Jesse? <laughs> oh, the book is divided into 32 chapters, each representing one night in the month of October. Stories told in first person akin to journal entries through 33 full-page illustrations. I would need to get that, Paul, for one. Uh, one per chapter, one plus one on the inside back cover. Punctuated tale heavily influenced by Lovecraft. Tiles from Edgar Allan Poe's Gula Lumi. Um... Which is a great poem. Yep. Zelazny thanks him as well as others. Mary Shelley, Bram Stoker, Sir Arthur Conan, Robert Block, mm-hmm. Albert Payne, Payson Terhune. I've never heard of that guy. Dog breeder. Whose most famous characters appear in the book. A Night Lonesome <laughs> October. Terhune? Really? Oh, that's so funny. I that read so many of those books. Yeah. Lad, a dog, and, and uh, all the Collie books and stuff. But that explains snuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Snuff is, okay. is our point of view character, Jesse. He's a dog. How, how long is this book? 
like it's short. It's, it's short. Uh, seven hours, maybe. Um, I know Audible has a version. Let's have one that says. Well, let me just. It oh, is. There's one on YouTube. Six CDs. Um, maybe yeah, that's five. Short. Mm, um, it just, is six and a half hours. Let me just check and see if it's available. I highly hours. recommend listening. To, I know there's a new version out with a new narrator, but I really love the version in Roger the last. Oh, I got that one here. Yeah. Oh well, then that, that's the one we obviously have to listen to. Moral right. imperative. Moral imperative. Moral imperative. <laughs> Moral imperative. Wow, that's pretty strong. View file list. It um, is available. This is an so, awesome book, Jesse. So I feel strongly uh, about it. Trish feels strongly well. About what it. if I hate it? What if I get through it and I'm like, uh, you guys, you got if something you wrong with it, your we brains? Will have a very lively and stimulating oh, discussion, good. Jesse. <laughs> oh, good. Now you now you sold me on it. You got me sold. Okay. Um, speaking of selling, I'm going to try and sell you guys on this amazing TV show I've been watching. I've only watched three episodes. Okay. Um, it's not uh, the Orville, is it, Jesse? Cobra Kai, mm-hmm. season five. No. <laughs> she no, Hulk. Um, uh, <laughs> she Hulk, I dig. She Hulk's amazing. <laughs> That's wonderful. You, I've, you I've love seen, the I've booty seen, shake scene? I've, 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 I've watched three episodes. That. Was that a post credit thing? It's I don't so know. Because it's just like. A lawyer show, like said in that with a, crazy Marvel with a She-Hulk. Well, we, 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 because Jennifer Walters is a lawyer. That yeah, so can't... it's they actually did it right. They didn't make it like a superhero show where she's out fighting bad guys. It's like that's always like her side quest. Right. Side her quest. whole deal is that she wants she to continue a lawyer, being so like, a lawyer. She spent half her life, you know, she spent her life training to be a lawyer, and that's what she's, she's got. So that loans to pay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that show. I'm, I'm, well, I'm I think that's my favorite that of the Marvel show so far. What um, show do you want to tell us about? Well, it's uh, it's got two seasons under its belt, or the second one's about to wrap. I've seen three episodes of the first season, and it's what I described it as. I said, uh, best show I've seen this year, maybe best show I've seen the last five years, maybe the best show for past that, because it's so different. It's called Primal. You guys heard of this show? The it's a cartoon. Um, it's wordless. Uh, it's not soundless. It's wordless, and it's about a, uh, a caveman basically who rides a dinosaur. So, 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 so <laughs> I'm not really selling good. you on it, right? It's, it's I saw the tweet with the trailer. I was not sold. What's so astounding about it is it's it, the the title Primal. Is what it, it, it's so emotionally raw. Uh, in the first episode, the, uh, caveman sees his, his family eaten by, uh, dinosaurs and becomes very upset. <laughs> and he has no words. He's like a caveman, right? Uh, but he has memories and he has emotions and he tries to attack these dinosaurs that attacked him. Um, and he meets another dinosaur, um, and they get into a fight. Um, but they don't end up killing each other. Um, that dinosaur also lost its family. Um, and eaten by other dinosaurs. So they team up and, uh. They team up and fight crime? No, they team up and have existential horror happen to them. Uh, where in the third episode, um, we meet a, a, a tribe of, uh, woolly mammoths or mastodon. I think it's mastodons. 
And one of them's very old, and it's falling behind the pack, and we're following along behind it. And then the, it gets attacked by our two heroes. Um, and they kill it and eat it. And, like, that was horrible. <laughs> right? So what happens is you're watching it, you feel... It so far. Oh, it's so primal. It's so raw and powerful. It is incredible. It's a, it's almost like I can't, it's not something TV does. It's very, uh, cinematic. Um, and in fact, like I was, something's wrong with the aspect ratio. They film it or, you know, however they do cartoons, they draw it with black bars at the top and bottom for a modern television. So they're making it very filmic as well. You really can't believe how strangely what, what compelling it is. What is this on, Jesse? Uh, on the pirate website. Um, what, uh, it's on some sort of uh, on cartoon HBO network? Max, according is to it? The okay. Yeah. okay, thank you. Yeah, I'm not an HBO guy, but um, it's... Uh, I'd heard a lot about it, and I'm like, eh, yeah, it's a guy riding a dinosaur. Don't care. Stupid, right? But um, the first episode is entitled Spear and Fang. And, uh, I've heard a lot of the Robert E. Howard people, all of it, um, Robert E. Howard Twitter. <laughs> um, and it is, it is basically, uh, the raw emotion of Conan, um, when he's angry. Um, a lot of screaming, like, uh, lions sounding coming out of, uh, dinosaurs and also the caveman screaming. But there's no words. It's completely wordless. And that is very different from regular TV. Like, it's just not, it's not anything like regular TV. It's all, it's almost like an art film, but it's, you know, a TV series. So I've been savoring it. I, I watched one. I'm like, wow, that was really powerful. Can't watch another one. I'm going to have to wait a day. Right. It's not like those, uh, TV shows where you start watching them and say, oh, I got to see what happens next. It's nothing like that, right? And it, I was like, uh, I really like Better Call Saul. I think that's a was a really terrific show, uh, but it's a completely different kind of show, <laughs> like not anything related. So it is a, uh, it, it's special, and um, I was very shocked because I don't usually like uh, most things. You know, I'm like, eh, She-Hulk, don't need it. <laughs> I've seen the uh, Marvel lawyers before. What's the Daredevil guy was a lawyer, right? Yes. Yes. Matt Murdock. He hasn't showed up in She-Hulk yet. Right? I, I presume oh, he, he will. should. Um, hopefully it's... They're on completely it's different sides of the continent, Jesse. Matt Murdock's a New York guy. Jen is... Yeah, a, she's a, a beach girl. lady. Yeah, I remember seeing the... Uh, I never I never read She-Hulk comics. I wasn't a Hulk guy in the um, first place. She-Hulk she, she, she also does a little fourth wall breaking that Matt Murdock does not. Yeah, uh, so it's, that's that's part of the humor. It's not it's not humor. as egregious as Deadpool, but she clearly knows she lives in a comic world and she and plays with that. And so, um, the, the couple episodes that Shane Hook I've seen after the first, she does actually does address the audience of like, like, can you believe this? <laughs> uh, did so. you uh, put um, Lonesome in? Bring it in right now. Okay, and then uh, Evan wants to do Blaze, and I'm down for that. Blaze? Um, Prince Blaze right. of Amber? Oh, wait, that's a different one. One Zelazny <laughs> at a time, bud. One Zelazny <laughs> at a time. You have overdose on the Zelazny. 
Here's a question for you, Evan. Spicy, spicy question. Okay. We know Stephen King is a shit lib. Is Richard Bachman a shit lib? Uh, I don't think so. I think you're right. Interesting, right? We all contain multitudes, Jesse. Yep. Uh, or do we just mature into shit libs? <laughs> uh... <laughs> right. I mean. Didn't he do a didn't he do a Bachman book later on that was uh twinned with another book? Regulators um, the right, or something? Yeah, yeah. See, he, oh, yes, yeah. Yes, so, but, but that's the 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 Bachman book's better of the two. You might like that actually. Well that's we'll see. Kind of about in the regulators. It's So he needs to channel his does he need to channel his inner Bachman? Uh, he channels his inner Bachman plenty does of he? times. Yeah. Alright. Okay. Because uh, ba- Bachman um, was angry. In Stephen King books, Bachman's there quite often. He's there making bad decisions. Bachman, Bachman, <laughs> he's our man. If he can do it, no one can. So, uh, 1106, good for that, Evan? Yeah, that's good. Blaze. Blaze. By Ricard. Wait, don't, don't forget, we also want to schedule the... Um, oh, Cosmic Computer? Cosmic Computer Junker. All planets. right. Um, the next date for that would be eleven six. Eleven thirteen. Eleven thirteen. Okay. Can you pop it in there? Yes, sir. Sir. Right. Yes, sir. So uh, Jesse and uh, Evan. Who else wants to be on Blaze by Richard Bachman? Probably me, because I'm usually on these things. Paul wants to make sure nobody. Catches up to him on the <laughs> uh, charts. Not a competition. Maybe it is. I'm going to sit back and relax and enjoy my lead, Paul. <laughs> well, you're you're the creator of this podcast, so uh, co-creator with Scott. With Scott. Yeah. I mean, I mean, theoretically, the Skippy and Fanti podcast was co-created with someone who's not been on the show in ten years. Is he? Still, he doesn't get listed as co-creator. That I um, watched a Marvel movie recently. What was it? Uh, it was Thor number four. The Love one? and Thunder. Love and Thunder. I have that's not right. seen Love and Thunder at all. It's okay. I haven't it's not seen it. Yeah, it's better than uh, the first one or the second one. I think second one is the second one is first one's okay. Dark. Well, one's pretty good. The second one is awful. Yeah, I don't um, remember Ragnarok's it at all, good. other than table flipping. Yeah, and the fourth... And Ragnarok's terrific. It's one Ragnarok's of the terrific. Marvel movies. Really Ragnarok, Ragnarok is possibly my favorite Marvel movie. It's, it's really great. It's a, it's a it's, solid choice for that. Ant, Ant-Man's really good, but I think Ragnarok's better. Um, So, I think we all agree Ragnarok's the best so far. But uh, this is this is good. It's It's fine. Um, it's funny. It's a little funnier, uh, because it's, uh, opening and closing narration are by the director, Taika Waititi character, who is wrong about things. Uh, so it's like, what's that called? Uh, uh, unreliable narrator. Unreliable narrator. Yeah. And so the narrative is unreliable. For some reason, the Guardians of the Galaxy are in, uh, in and out of the beginning. It doesn't really add anything to the movie other than we get to see those characters for a minute. Yeah. Uh, sort of the, they they wrote themselves into that, right? Because at the end of Endgame, they're like, "Thor's going to go know. off the Guardians." Oh, like, maybe well, that was a bad fucking they, idea. So but there was yeah. there, there, there was also a comic I remember called "As Guardians of the Galaxy," which had as, which had Tip and a couple other as 
Sif and Loki and a couple others running around doing gardens. How close is that air conditioning, Trish? Oh, sorry. (laughs) It seems like like it's approaching you. It's hot in Tidewaterland, Jesse. Be nice. Who else wants to be on Cosmic Computer? Uh, Me? Well, I know you, obviously. I can do it. All right. A.K.A. Junk Hair Planet. Talk to you guys later. All right. I'm generally up for uh, HB and Piper stories. Not on Twitter. I won't see you there for a while. Oh, damn it. Okay, well, let me just make sure you're on for next week. Yeah, I'll send... You're going to have to go on Twitter to to get the Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Sawyer. All right. All right. All right. All right. Go go whitewash some fences. Alright, bye-bye. Bye. Um, these Michael Crichton books are really good, and I heard uh, there is a similar... We do have to thank Cor... We have to thank Hugo Winnicorabuller for turning us on to them. How dare you? How dare you? My idea. My she, idea. Stealing yeah, my idea and giving it to them. a Hugo winner. She's the one that's finding them. I think we give her credit. I think she deserves credit. I think, I think if you go back and look... I've been on more Michael Creighton shows than she has. No, but, you know, but these recent ones have been her doing. How dare you? It's true. How <laughs> dare you? Uh, uh, Important dare I tell part. The truth? Oh it's, boy! I don't think it. I think I think you are uh, misremembering. However, um, that's not the important part. The important part is like uh, this blaze where they found an old Bachman book. Um, they found an old uh, Michael Crichton book uh, from right around the period where he was still writing as John Lang. Um, and it was published quite uh, late in his life. Um, and it's a dinosaur book, uh, dinosaur hunting, dinosaur fossil hunting book. So this might be a Paul book. Um, yes, dinosaur. I'm down for dinos- dinosaur. I, I, I look at a lot of dinosaur hunting fossils in Chicago. That's for sure. Crichton. And what is it? Dragon Teeth is what it's called. What? So no, that makes was, me think of the myth of Cadmus. It was written in 1974, published in 2017. Uh, set in the American West in 1876 during the Bone Wars. Oh, period of nice. competition yeah. for fossil hunting. Yes. Uh, between two real-life paleontologists. The plot follows the fictional protagonist, William Johnson, a Yale student, who works during the summer alternately for the two paleontologists. So, historical, Paul. Yes, it, 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 based on real history. Mm-hmm. So, that might be upcoming. That's only 320 pages as well, right? So, it is from the period when books were short. <laughs> Although, that's a little longer than some. But uh, I, I like this idea of Michael Crichton's... Um, uh, his um, early stuff, because they're, they are short, and he is an interesting writer. Um very smart guy. Um, and I believe I watched another Crichton movie recently, too. Uh, oh, yeah. A movie called Looker. Do you guys remember this movie? I from do From 1981? So I said uh, the plot for this one could have been Michael Crichton's John Lang no- novels. It's cyberpunk science fiction techno thriller. And the, here's the description. Albert Finney is a L.A. plastic surgeon whose supermodel clients are being murdered, and he's being framed for them. Um, so that, sounds basic- aw- that sounds awfully like what we've read already. Yeah, it's uh, there are a lot of these sort of like uh, 
interest and so it uh, stars Susan Day. Remember her? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, from LA Law, but more importantly, she was like one of those 60s uh, girl band idols. Or no, Susan Day and David Cassidy. You'd see it like in comic books, they'd be a pinup of Susan Day in the 70s girl comics. Um, and also stars James Coburn as the bad guy, which is great. I'm always up for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, so the premise of this is it is, it's very futuristic. Uh, evil company, uh, giant evil company has a, uh, idea of selling advertising by using computer generated imagery. Um, and so they get a couple or three or four models to get plastic surgery so that they can model them better in the computer. Um, and then uh, they end up dying. I can't remember why they end up getting killed. But Albert Finney investigates, um, and Susan Day is one of these uh, uh, girls he uh, adjusted, uh, surgeried, and um, he's worried that she's going to get killed. She thinks he's interested in her romantically, and he's saying, "Like, no, I'm, I don't, I don't uh, date my patients or whatever." Um, and uh, there's a, like a guy running around with a what they call a looker gun. Uh, basically, it's like a flash beam thing. It shoots light at you, um, and uh, it makes you makes time stop for you. So, like, you can get beat up by a guy. Uh, who's much weaker than you. If he flashes you in the face, you'd like lose time. It's really science fiction-y. Very cool. A 1981 movie. So, he's, uh, he's uh, very uneven, but he wrote that plot. Um, he wrote the book or the movie. Um, and it would have been a great book. It would have been a much better book than it was a movie, I'm sure. But uh, Drug of Choice was terrific. It's a lot like that, right, Paul? That's that's exactly what I was thinking of. It sounds awfully like Drug, drug of Choice. Yeah, yeah. He's, he, he's uh, it's, uh, drugs, it's uh, hip, hypnotic guns or whatever. Hypno-guns. So, Hypno-guns, yeah. So um, he's a uh, – I always thought of him as an outsider to science fiction, and he is, right? No Hugos for him. Or if they are, they're for his movies or something, right? I'm not sure if he asked. That's a good question. I'm not sure if as he was, was Jurassic Park surely won one. Um, and if not, then right. I'm a good. I have to look. Hugo winner. Hugo winner. And best, best dramatic presentation. Um. Um. Crichton. Jurassic Park won. Of yes. course it did. So he has one for Jurassic Park. Yeah, probably I have no is. idea who was actually. I don't know if he actually was at the convention. Oh, very unlikely. He's. I, I mean, generally, best, best dramatic presence um, guys never show up. Yeah, you know, I mean, Jay they, Michael Straczynski might have, but he's sort of in the club, or on the periphery of the club. Um. Yeah, he's close enough that I think, I think didn't that. one of his get nominated this year. For Straczynski? TV? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, Doesn't he have like a Sense8 or something spinoff? Um, I don't think it oh, won. But. Let's, see, let's see. This year, this year Long was... Um, I think it would have been short. Yeah. 
Oh, long like, list? You mean? No, no. The long, the long form was expanse. Um, oh, this. Oh, okay. Yeah. So short. Um, long Dune and Canto, the Green Knight, Shang Chi, Space Sweepers, One Division, Dune One, which you know. Yeah, Whatever. I was saying um, that's silly to to you know you haven't finished you wrote half the book. Yeah, yeah, say, I, I it was not the top of my ballot, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't the top of Trish's ballot either. My top, my top of my ballot. Spill the tea, way, Trish. Was, was it was, the top of your ballot? I'm sorry. What? You need to spill the tea, <laughs> as Will would say. Um, was uh, Hugo uh, long form movie Dune at the top of your ballot? Definitely not. No, space oh, Sweepers. Space Sweepers, yes. Okay. That, that, that's, which, that's which is a movie that everyone one, right? would love. Really? Because it has interesting things to say about labor relations oh, yeah, in yeah, space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it makes yep. sense. so up his alley. If he has not seen it, he should. Oh, uh, he won a Nebula for Westworld. Oh, no. no nominated, sorry. Nominated. Uh, and Bram Stoker Award, Locus, Jurassic Park. Seiyun? Oh, Andromeda Strain. That's interesting. Seeing the words is Japanese. Oh, I know. I'm just saying, like, the Japanese gave it. Um, gave him a translation, I guess, yeah. Andromeda Strain's a terrific science fiction book. It's just techno-thriller, so it doesn't feel like science fiction. True. I guess that maybe that's, that's the main reason he's not a, considered a science fiction guy, is because techno-thriller is what he's thought of as. Um, techno thrillers don't tend to win science fiction stuff. They tend to, they tend not to. No. Why is that, Paul? Um, because generally, until recently, science fiction, the science fiction voting electorate wanted nutty nuggets, and techno thrillers no. are not nutty nuggets. What are nutty nuggets, Paul? Um, old old school science fiction. Oh, I see. So, okay. Yeah, so it was a club, and he wasn't invited. Um, he didn't come up the right... He didn't have the right provenance. Right, but, but until, and then once other things started winning outside that club, certain people complained, and we wound up with the puppies. Uh, certain people. Uh, uncertain people and certain people. So, I'm the uncertain know, person here. I mean... I mean uh, Michael Crichton didn't win any. So, yeah, I, I would say Jurassic Park is uh, techno thriller too. Is there any any sure. ones of his that wasn't uh, that was straight up science fiction? I don't. Well, what about? Uh, I haven't read um, Congo. Um, I think that that's an adventure. Uh, that's sort a, of it's book. more adventure, yes. Yeah, but also like even it, it's probably techno thriller too, but adventure. Um, there's another one. What's the sphere? Right? Doesn't that have a spaceship in it? It has a crashed spaceship in it, but it's much more psychological. It's also not a great movie, so I don't know how no. good the book is. No, the book is not much better, Mike. I mean, yeah, I had a feeling it wasn't. I might even. I, I, I mean, you're, you're out of you're out of the lean and mean Crichton at this point, and yeah, it's a little late, Crichton. So. It's a little late for Crichton. He did a time travel one though, right? Timeline. Timeline. Yes. Yes. Um, didn't that get I, a movie? Um, as a matter of fact, um, Trish and I both watched that for a as yet not recorded episode of Torture Cinema. Oh, I guess it's not so good. Um. 
I enjoyed it. It's not good, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I think I might have seen it. Um, was it? I, I think I'm confusing it with the one. Remember, there was like knights who um, uh, joust to rock music. What was that movie? That, that's a knight's tale. That's a different movie. Yeah, yeah, it but it came out around the same time, right? Um, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I'm trying to even find the poster for the timeline 2003. Uh, no, no, no. Great. The knight's tale was 90s. That, that was Roger before he died. Tale. 2001, bud. 2001 and 2003. How dare you? Okay, you you win, I lose. (laughs) I'm just saying they're around the same time. You were correct, I was incorrect. What was so weird about that Knight's Tale was the, not the, it was the music, right? Yeah. It was like, um, we know this is ahistorical. It, well, it, we it love was, it. it <laughs> We're doing, leaning into it. It was doing a thing, yes. They, they decided yeah. to go for the thing. Well, there might have been slow motion as well. But what's funny is, like, watching uh, Excalibur, the music there is probably a historical, too. But, but, not, but it's it not fits. as good music, though. So. <laughs> uh, what do you mean? Um, well, what, which that, way are you going? Because I, I, I think I, they're I both good. Like better music. Really? You think I, the music in in uh, Night's Tale is better Excalibur than Excalibur? Isn't good? Absolutely. But, wow! But, hot but, take, Paul. But, I think you're going to get canceled for this. But <laughs> remind you, I am I am tone deaf and and not very good at music, so that's my shield. That, I think that that's going to be the opening uh, uh, for the pot. As Paul says the classes. I'm tone deaf and. Uh, uh, not, but, it, but it is almost 12.30, Jesse. It's about time for me to get running. I, I have an, another commitment soon. I'll, I'm I'll pretty like. hungry. I'm going to fix myself some lunch now. Is it still uh, hot you. there, Trish? What? Sorry? Your uh, your air conditioning on. Is it still hot? Yes. Uh, yes, and um, we don't want Trish to melt. So It's also humid, um, and the air conditioner helps with both. Yeah, yeah. It gets rid of the... It says, wow. It's smoky here. It's 16 degrees. But super smoky. I yeah, came I, yeah, out of my I, bedroom I, I, and I've seen the I've seen the bad. photos from down south of you in Portland and Seattle, and they look kind of like um, Spokane did a few years ago, where it's like apocalyptic skies. It's not good. Oh yeah, I saw a great um, picture of somebody with apocalyptic skies. But um, yeah, okay, I'll let you all go. But um, um, hopefully it'll get cool for next time, Trish, because that air conditioner is aggressively attacking the audio. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. I didn't okay. mute every thing, time I realized. The other thing to do is you like cool cool down the room before the podcast and then just get warmer as it goes. <laughs> right? Okay. I'll bear yeah. that in mind. Sorry. Because we that. want we want your we want you not to be muted and have to, you know, come in when you're muted. It's right, right. Faster, faster. Better, better. better, better. All right. All right. Take care, um, Jesse. Yeah, have Take a good care. one. Talk to you Take guys care. later. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Recording. I'm just getting to turn it. Hey. Hello. Hey. Various. I'm here. I was a bit worried. Why were you worried? Why were you worried? Oh, I was Because you were taking a Twitter break. Yeah. Uh, and Trish is joining us, too. Yes. I was telling Paul, not Paul, I was telling uh, Scott, uh, I have Mentat powers. What? Since yep. when? 
I'll just read what I... He was... Uh, we were going back and forth about... Um, Eric is uh, going up to Florida, so uh, we have to talk about reading short and deep. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where is he? Um, no. Uh, okay. I, oh, I was telling him his sound quality wasn't great on his on his latest YouTube video. Something wrong with that tinny. Um, uh, here, listen to this. Uh, three RSDs in the can, says Scott. Please say hi to Paul for me. Oh, and Evan. Nice group this morning, looks like. And, and then Jesse says, and Trish is joining. And he says, ha ha, nice thread. Thanks. I guess that must have been something earlier. Um, yay. Tr- yay, Trish, he says. Please say hi to all. Off to church shortly. And I say, want some hot gossip? And he says, exchange some emails with Eric. Seems like a smooth transition for him. Oh, yeah, he moved. Eric moved recently. Oh, um, okay, that explains that. And he <laughs> says, sure, hot about? gossip me. And then I say, true story. I think Trish and Paul are an item. And then Scott says, hey, cool. Good for both of them. I say, I'm going by inference alone, but I am a trained mentat. <laughs> a trained mentat. You are not a trained mentat. Well, uh, let's see. Is it true, Paul? Um... Oh, cannot confirm, cannot deny. Is confirmation enough for Jesse? No, it is not confirmation (laughs) enough for anybody. Uh, It's confirmation enough for Jesse. Um, Jesse, no. Jesse, no. See? Confirmation enough for Jesse. Um, yeah, no. I won't have to hash it all out, but uh, Evan, Evan likes a good kissing book, so. My he's, life he's is not a into- kissing book. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> Very cute. Um, what else is going on? Trish is not online yet. Um, I, I, well, she's online. She's just not on the call. That's interesting. Um, I, I think she's probably just getting set up for the podcast. I mean, she's not on as often, so she's not... She, she she doesn't cut the margins like I do, like trying to get sneaking a sip turn before the before the pod before the podcast, and you think I'm deep playing well, your game. Evan's playing Elden Ring right now. That's why. Are I'm you, muted. Evan? He's muted because he's. Elden oh, Ring. I'm I'm here. Sorry, <laughs> I muted Elden before because right I was doing something, but I forgot You're playing to Elden Ring. Addicted. No, I'm not. It's, it's oh, it's Unity of Command, and I got Victoria Three. Oh. coming out. I already you, bought Unity of Command. Now, now, given recent events in the Russia Ukraine war, Unity of Command feels really, really um, topical. Jesse uh, doesn't well, know. Well, now you're reminding me of that that guy in my office. I was like working on my my T34 model. I think I told the story before. Maybe you weren't here for it, Paul. Work on my T30 because I like to have the afternoon off, so I brought my tank bottle box like a tank. Yeah, yeah T34 is a, a Russian tank. tank. It's a, and then it's a, yeah, no, I and then didn't the, know the that was in the game. Me, the guy behind me is like, "What are you working on?" And I said, "Oh, this is a, 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 a Russian, a Soviet tank." I think I said a Soviet tank. Yeah, T34. And then he's like, "Is it one of the ones Ukraine took?" And I said, <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow, the those are like these are from like World War Two. And then he he started saying like, "Well, why are you doing that here? How would you feel if I put a Nazi flag up on my desk?" What the fuck? <laughs> and I was kind of what? like, "What does that uh, have to do with the, the Soviet tank?" Jesus Christ! I, I, and these I, are and teachers. Then, and then he showed me a poem he had on a on a like a postcard, like a prayer for Ukraine. Oh my god! I'm like, a prayer for Ukraine. I'm like, well, that's nice. I'm glad you're praying for Ukraine. Oh my god! Um, but I'm I'm gonna continue working on on making rust on my 34 because it's really difficult to make rust. <laughs> <laughs> How is this game? What, what is it? Uh, isometric or what? No, yeah. it's, it's, turn, it's turn based. It's turn based. Oh, it's, it's turn based. All about World it, War then. Two. It, it's, it's a pretty cheap a game, but they keep releasing like different camp parts of the war and yeah. expansion. I have a, I have a, I have a buy them as soon as they come out because it's so fun. Cut, cutting, cutting off units and um, and encircling tactics are the yeah. way to win this game, which is why I was thinking it's very topical for having to play it right now, given what's yeah. happening. But I was, yeah, no, I, I was referring to the the, the con- like somehow connecting World War Two to. Kind of oh. events in Ukraine, which I'm sure there are relations, there's connections you can make, but this guy wasn't making them. This guy was trying to get on the skin. Uh, is he a teacher? He's a teacher. Jesus Christ! What is he um, teaching? He teaches social studies. I mean, he got promoted. Oh my God. It. He got promoted to professional development with no training. Hey, in professional development. Save it, save it for the podcast. Save it for the podcast. <laughs> well, All right, let's listen um, to me. I don't know. He might follow. I me don't the, think you know? so. Most people don't. Most people don't. Uh, if that if they did, they, they no. But I have to no say, like being that uh, that Stephen King's thread you sent me it was like literally the straw that forced, <laughs> that, that, that broke the camel's back and forced me into like Twitter break. Was smug well, was the did, word, did, right? Did, 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 Calling did Stephen King smug. I was. I'm not. It's not triggered. It's it's like this. It's that uh, Soretti's uh, paradox. You know, at what point does the does the sand become a lump? You know that paradox. Mm-mm. I'm not quite certain. Well, it's like if you keep adding one grain of sand right. to something, at what point does it become a, a heap? I think oh, okay. Right. It, it, and then if you say, oh, it's 20 sand, well, why not 19? Why not 21? So it becomes kind of absurd. So it, it has to do about like Zeno's paradox in a way. It's kind of connected to that too. Mm. Right? How can you define anything? Yes. That's built up in minute bits. And it was well, kind of like. You- it's like the straw that broke the camel's back, right? What is the what, what moment does that happen? One, yeah. one, and it was like the nonsense on both sides about like Tolkien and the race thing. I'm like, oh god, you're still talking about this shit. <laughs> and what else? I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff going on, and I'm just like, I'm gonna step out for a while. How about how about Les Mis and Hamilton having identical? Yeah, that, that didn't help. <laughs> uh, queen con- consolations. Um, uh, like worded identically, but with different font. And then somebody says, what are these musicals about again? <laughs> um, yeah. Especially Hamilton. Like, what are you, where are you going with that one? Like, Miz makes, I mean, no. at least that's French, but you know. Well, it's revolution times too. Um, well, it's but it's post French Revolution. I mean, Les Mis is the barricades well, of eighteen thirty. Yeah, it's like yeah, so it's like Even I mean so. they, they lost they lost they lost their king, got an emperor, lost an emperor, got a king again. 
and they weren't revolting against the king, more than was against oppression. So like Miz, I can see, but Hamilton, um, yeah, that like I I, I showed uh, I showed Trish, hi Trish, um, this thing from the um, new from the Tea Party, so um, commemorating the Queen's death. It's like Tea Party, the, the American mm, Tea how, Party, what? the Republicans. Yes, it's like. Tea party. Yeah, I I, I was surprised was how oh, I all the conservatives in, on Twitter who are somehow adjacent to my account, so I see them retweeting stuff, um, are such queen worshippers. It's fucking insane. It, it is extremely. It's extre- it's weirdly monarchical. It's it's what makes you conservative, is you say, well, they've been a tradition for a thousand years. So we should have more support them. It's almost like paleo conservative, right? There are those. People it is. Bring back it is very conservative. Like natural yes. leaders or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Let's change the topic to something very important to Evan, uh, and probably me because I care a lot for some reason. Um, I, after you quit Twitter, you missed <laughs> something good. Um, well, like I sent you like twelve hours ago. I, I, I well, lots of account, exciting things I happened. Been twelve hours, Jesse. I hadn't been uh, on for a few days. That's true. Uh, fairy tale by Stephen King. The dedication you already knew about. R e h e r b and H p l. He's yeah, shouting those out. But it has interior illustrations for a lot of the chapters, oh, that's and they're really good. Um, one of them uh, is by uh, well, there's two different artists. One is um. Uh, N- Nicholas Delort, who I don't know, but the other one's Gabriel Rodriguez, who I do know. Um, and he, he co-did a comic called Lock and Key for, um, IDW, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, with yeah, and Stephen King's kid. series. Yeah. But the, uh, he's a terrific artist and it makes like me want to buy the hardcover. I'm not going to, uh, but looking at the pictures for it, um, it's like gorgeous, you know, Interior art in a in a 2022 adult presumably book. It's a big thick book. Uh, like Stephen King has the power to uh, make artists work again on interior art. That's pretty impressive. Because the publisher wouldn't want to do that. Pay money, right, for extra art in, inside. That's not our job. <laughs> That's what they would say. Well, but Stephen King has the power to to make it happen. I mean, and then this is like a return to form. It sounds like for Stephen King, he's been doing all these like procedural stuff and noir kind of stuff, true crime kind of novels. I, I don't know anything for about like this five book other than years, the art and this is straight that. up like fantasy out of. It's, oh, it's I kind see. Because it's been compared to like uh, the Talisman. We should mention Peter Straub recently passing. You're pouring one yes. for Peter Straub. Yeah. Or up here, Straub, absolutely. Um, this, I, I read one of his stories. Seems like the, the plot description is, seems similar to uh, Talisman. Yeah. Um, so you're yeah. saying that long live the king? I'm saying, well, <laughs> I'm saying he's not smug, but I don't know where you get that from. He's got his issues, like almost on Twitter. And I guess you, you have more of a textual critique of his, which I'm fine with making. Oh, um, you mean uh, the, the uh, idea I'm, that he somehow yes. misses the point sometimes. Yes, he and always aims at the target and then misses. Like, um, I, I don't quite agree I, I, with I, I, 2011, I was, 2263, your take on that? Because I haven't I think, read that. 
Yeah, you haven't read it. He's yeah, it's a it's not really a Kennedy assassination murder. He just no, no, it's not. It's a time to, travel. The point is not about. It's, it's really a love story. For him, mm. time travel love story. But it's something he's obsessed touching. with, right? And can't he is obsessed with, with JFK, and yeah. it even infiltrates the Dark Tower, uh, unfortunately. But it does it. That's well, weird. yeah. There's Kennedy being the last gunslinger. It gets mentioned. Oh my god! Drawing to oh my. Okay, okay, so that that is a very okay. I shouldn't say weird because they're weird things. So that is a very strong affectation he has for JFK. Well, he's yeah. a boomer, right? Yeah, it's a boomer and thing. I think. It's, yeah, uh, it's you know, it would have been just like the Sputnik story for him, huge yeah. in his life. JFK assassination, huge in his life. JFK but, blown away. What else do I have to say? As the song uh, says. Uh, that's for the Paul Very Sings the Classics song. podcast. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I, I'm not a fan of that song either because it is. I don't even know it. Boomers thinking the entire history revolves around them, right? Someone uh, should uh, yeah, so so start with like a like uh, I don't know, Nebuchadnezzar or something. Epic Ash or something. <laughs> But no, uh, the songs didn't start when I was born. That's, with, that's what I care. Speaking of the uh, epic of Gilgamesh in the Oriental Institute, I saw a cuneiform tablet that had a piece of it on it. Yeah, they keep finding little bits of it or whatever. Yeah, right? they keep they keep they keep finding. They keep adding to the story. Yeah, they 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 keep finding little bits that have lines we don't have before, adding to this. Mm. I mean, it's the it's the original endless epic that we're it's finding pieces of. That's good. Yeah. yeah, it is good. Uh, Trish has been any... awfully quiet. Hi, Trish. Yes. Hi. I'm sorry. Oh, I've been here. trying to boot my computer into action. It's being very slow today. I'm on my phone right now. I'm hoping that Skype will come up. Oh. Moment well, we can, we can do some uh, hot... Hot topics uh, while we wait, if you like. Spicy <laughs> topics. Sure. What? What's so? Um, there was a lot of. Uh, I watched the entire Hugo uh, ceremony. Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I gotta say, I do not ever. Rem- I haven't seen them all, right? But I do not remember ever seeing this many tiaras. <laughs> it, it was like oh. maximum tiara. The, a lot of masks and a hell of a lot of tiaras. Well, everyone was supposed to be masked, but yes, tiaras are tiaras are tiaras in. are optional. The no, tiaras are in. I didn't wear a tiara. No, no, no. But you were also. I don't think you were on display. Like, they didn't show the audience, right? No, they did. They don't do the. They don't do the Oscars where they show the audience. The uh, yeah, nobody got slapped in the face. Uh, and uh, what was it? What did they say? Keep keep my wife's name out of your fucking. <laughs> Um, yes. um, none of that happened. The none drama was much smaller. Yes, there's there, there no Raytheon, nothing like that. I think there was a Raytheon thing, but it wasn't no. on the this year's Who Goes. That was last um, year's. No, no, there was a Raytheon thing that just. Oh yeah, it was a Raytheon. Uh, is very sad about the Queen. Oh well, <laughs> they're, they're welcome to their sadness. <laughs> I mean, Google. I mean, if you think Google's evil, Google did provide the um, close yeah. captioning for the for the Hugo's. So, hey, Google is evil, but, uh, but it's also you know something we use every day, unfortunately. 
Yeah, I, I don't think DuckDuckGo is going to provide closed captioning to... DuckDuckGo's search is really bad. Unless it's for a topic that's banned, in which case it's slightly better. But, <laughs> it, like, it just doesn't bring up this, you know, the things I'm... Usually, like, I, I want to see uh, H.B. Piper, right? And it, it will bring up H.B. Piper, but the ordering is bad. Uh, or, you know, their image search is not great. So... Unfortunately, DuckDuckGo is not a replacement for speak, Google search. Speak, speaking of image searches, and a, I've been playing a bit with AI, and so today yes, everybody, you and everybody, I, I took I took a I took an image of mine, a photo of mine, and threw it into a, into AI and and gave it the prompt Albert Bierstadt. You know who Albert Bierstadt was? No. Um, Javin. Uh, sounds somewhat familiar. Is he the is he the serial killer? No. Um, Trish, Albert Bierstadt. Oh, Albert Fish is. The, she just left. Oh, she left. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Albert Bierstadt was a famous landscape painter, paper yeah. of the nineteenth century. Uh huh. He did lots. Oh, that of makes sense. With your uh, Trish's back. Yeah. So, so 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 I took a picture of I took a picture of Mount Hood. Threw it into the AI, said Albert Bierstadt, and came up with a picture that, if you didn't know that I put it in an AI, you would think it was an Albert Bierstadt picture. Oh, I'm seeing it. It's got now. the exact same style. It's like, it's scary. Yeah. It is, it is, you know it is what's really interesting? I'm back on the call and I'm recording. Oh, good. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, I can see the style. Um, what I've been noticing, what about a lot of people have been commenting on these AI pictures, is. Uh, like they, they get really excited about the image results, but I believe the way these, a lot of the AI, uh, art systems work is they, they go out on the internet and they find other pictures, right? Yes. This is, this is how they do the AI thing, right? And so they, they get really excited about, uh, the art, but what they're actually doing is like, give me some pictures that look like the thing I want. But don't credit the artist. No, <laughs> original no, artist. I'm like, like people like John Picasso are really pissed. By yes. I, well, the, their livelihoods are threatened. But it, yeah, we can very see much interest. so. It's like mm-hmm. I mean, it's I mean, it's fundamentally just like derivative of other artists. I mean, uh, well, I have no problem with the <laughs> the um, you know, the technology changing and AIs taking over every artist's job, even though. Uh, you know, I think artists should should definitely do art. Uh, what I have a problem with is the fact that people don't know that that's what's what's going on. Like they don't think, oh, this is actually some art that's out there on the internet that I'm seeing in this thing I asked for. What they're thinking is that the AI made it, and yeah, that it's, is it's a mistake. Crea- yeah, it's not creating anything, but it's. It's just well, it's it's mashing up shit, and sometimes yeah. it looks good, and sometimes it doesn't. But when it looks good, it's because there was a real artist involved in the first place, right? Human selecting yeah. stuff or whatever. So, what what it really is <laughs> is more neoliberalism. Right? It's like those the AI companies are now uh, str- struggling to for dominance of who's going to replace all the cover artists. Outsourcing all their jobs. Well, well, yeah. I mean, if if if, if um, book publishers decide to use this stuff for cover art, they will because they they have shit art 
to you know they don't want to spend any money on art now they don't have to right, right. so yeah so this is this is uh this, this this is a bread and butter issue for my artist friends uh what else what else is hot topic or is trish ready i'm ready okay we're getting some sort of noise from somebody sounds like crystals falling into a bathtub now it's gone away okay i don't know all right um uh remind me at the end um to talk about cosmic computer aka junkyard planet Mm mm-hmm um, and then I'm just going to check the schedule, see if there was any additions before uh, uh, we begin. All right. Bispossessed came out last week. Doom City's coming out uh, Monday, if you remember that one. Mm-hmm. All uh, right. And then uh, next next is Ministry of Disturbance. Trish is in for that. Paul and Evan. I mean, that's today. Oh, sorry, Jesse. sorry, yeah. sorry. I meant to say <laughs> Adventures of Tom way. Sawyer. Adventures yeah, of Tom, Tom Sawyer. <laughs> Slightly had, different. Slightly different. Um, <laughs> then Easy Go by Michael Crichton, Badge of Infamy, Lester Del Rey, Black Priestess of Varda by Eric Fennell. Uh, nudist camp, all right. Kissing book. Oh, and, uh, and, and, and when when you do easy go, you'll have a Hugo winner on your podcast. Well, like I was, I was telling uh, Cora, I'm tripling her pay. <laughs> yes, I saw that. <laughs> only doubling your pay, Paul, because you were only nominated. I was only nominated. Yes, and I'm having Evans pay for not being nominated. Yeah. Uh, sorry, bud. And you and you have to. Do I don't more know what work. it's going to take. <laughs> I, I tweet my disgust at not being nominated. Every um, few months, no one listens. I I think my my series on on Sinclair Lewis didn't didn't uh, I, catch, oh, the, catch the eye of the the. SFL it caught my audience. eye. I I put up uh, Babbitt the uh, paperback. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a Sinclair Lewis, right? Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, see, I'm I, I, all the important people are paying attention, Evan. Yeah, nudist camp. My my succulent audiobook of nudist camp. Well, we haven't heard that yet, but we're going to assume that it's pretty succulent. Uh, that one, I, I, I that one was fun. Good. I, I do I do think I might want to someday get some server space and just record a bunch of Ori hit stuff. And, there you go. I, and I haven't read like any Ori hit yet. Like public domain stuff like that and yeah there's a ton of those beacon books up on yeah. archive.org that are all public domain at least uh, ship, I, I, I want to do that there. slave ship one yep there's some good stuff in there bud all right um that all out of the way any anything else before we begin no you need not for me i'll done? be back on twitter not for me good good i'll try it try and keep the uh do you do you follow Stephen King on Twitter? Yeah, I follow me? him. No. Uh, yeah, because I mean, you're, you're going to see it, it just, right? I, I think I got to do the the like the really make the bad Stephen King takes a, a real Twitter thing. Maybe make it a whole channel. Maybe make make a whole page. <laughs> that, I love Stephen King. I hate Stephen King. He's smug. Uh, no. I no, I think that that's they're they're they got the wrong word there. That was the main problem. Yeah, is he is something, but smug is not exactly right because 
Um, because that's not exactly the right word for him. I mean, um, I, I think if anything, oh, oblivious. Quite like blinded? when you read his introductions to his like collections and stuff. I think there, there's an acknowledgement that he's doing this for money. There's acknowledgement that he's in a popular genre. He's, I don't know. I, Brin, David Brin is smug. <laughs> yeah. Yes, David Brin is is insufferably <laughs> smug, especially when it comes to things like Star Wars. What's so hilarious is that he's he he's his reason for being smug is bad because he thinks he's amazing and he's not really amazing. He's not actually terrible, but he's not amazing. <laughs> Whereas, like me uh, reading my uh, Specter of the Gun tweets, I'm like, this guy is amazing. <laughs> How did this not win every Hugo? And not just best related work, but best, uh, best, best fictional analysis. Why didn't they create new Hugo categories for um, Inspector of the well, Gun? Well, there, well, well there, there was, I should say drama, there was discussion in the business meeting about Hugo categories and especially like, should we continue best game, a fan versus pro in categories, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, some of the, some of the, the there was, um, some, pro stuff oh yeah like i think escape pod is not a no a no, no cast, but, yeah but right? but, but yes yeah, like stuff like our opinions are correct um i mean i know you hate i know you like to um shit take my language there i takes, listen to every episode man but i'm i'm but, theoretically but, a fan i don't use that word but but <laughs> you know, i don't think they should be in the same same uh category as fan cast like say you're the like say, um, Skippy and Fanti, or say SSF Audio. I think th- I don't think they should be competing with them. Dude, did you not see my tweets about how uh, we have the same number of employees? Between eleven and fifty employees, says one website. Uh, similar web says we have the same number of employees, and uh, our SFF Audio's ranking is way higher than theirs. And we both both websites bring in between two and five million dollars. Right here. Oh, dear God. In revenue. <laughs> Jesse, no. Dude. You don't make $2 million. I get at least $2. <laughs> I, I get, I like I'm, I'm just reporting the news. I'm not reporting the truth I, about this news. I, 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 I'm on this show more than anybody, including Scott. So well, I'm getting nothing, but it is $2 million. Is Trust me. Uh, the money's coming. <laughs> The check is not in the mail. I'm what I mean, you know, I have to uh I have to scrimp and save Paul. Oh, it's two million to five million, not two, <laughs> two to between million. two and five million. Yeah. Between per, two million per and year. five million. Yes, per year. Did you see the tweet? Uh no, oh yeah. By the way, um uh pulp covers asked he says, How's he doing? And I say, Yep, uh, between eleven and fifty employees and between two million and five million per year. Where did these statistics come from? From this website called SimilarWeb, which... Oh, uh, dear God. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, is it, they're, they're, the, we're not even really websites, right? This is a podcast that has a website. Um, so the traffic is very small compared to... Like, there are some listeners who go to the website and listen there. But most people are subscribed, is my assumption. Because I've seen the numbers and, you know, the hits are not the same, you know, and certainly we're not getting... keep on coming. No, no. The hits are way down since blogs died, right? So, so um, I, so, I was so saying... So, you signed up for this 
No, no, it's just free service. Yeah, but you gotta get get a login and crap. I just no, 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 no. You can use it free. Oh no, but but makes you want to sign in something. Well, every fucking website does that. Yeah, I'm not giving. Every fucking website says I need to give permission for cookies. I never give any fucking permission for another fucking cookie. Am I making me hate cookies? Well, no. Jesse hates cookies. Just making me hate cookies. It is. So yeah, isn't that crazy? So I did a side-by-side on SFF Audio and uh, our opinions. Um, And we're in the same category. Uh, Arts, entertainment, books, literature, I think. Is it the same? Yep. Yes. And so, like, these numbers, where are they getting them from? I don't know. I I would say almost nowhere. Um, (laughs) Um, They're getting out of their nether regions. They're guessing it. Yeah, they're guessing. They have some really crappy algorithm. I, I, don't, I don't even know if that's guess. It's good. I don't even. It, 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 it's too wrong to even be a guess. It's like no, they the they they put in some figure for websites of medium size or whatever, <coughs> and you know they're they're basing it on something. But uh, eleven to fifty employees. <laughs> I mean, I've probably had eleven people on the podcast, not on the same show. But <laughs> two to five million a year? I don't think so. I think I think we probably got a couple hundred dollars back in the in the big days of Google for one year, oh, maybe four God. or five hundred bucks. You've had about a dozen and a half people. Maybe maybe there's some more loss I didn't catch. But you've had a- yeah, but they're not employees. No, they're not employed. And it's not like we're sending out checks to people every day. <laughs> no, Whereas I think uh, our opinions does have an, one employee. They're a producer. Yes, they do have an employee. So maybe that's why I, I you need a producer. Student. I need a graduate student or something. Yeah, you need a minion. Well, or I, I probably just need like actual other people on my podcast. Um. But your podcast is really you talking, so and you'd have to change really change how you do your podcast to have other people on it. I mean, Jesse's Jesse's is yeah. designed from the ground up to be a discussion. Yours is uh, much 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 well, people, more. Your people people do interviews or whatever and stuff like that, but I don't think I I don't think that's the problem, Evan. The problem is you're talking about things nobody cares about except for me, right? You're talking about books. That's terrible. Don't talk about books. Talk about animation. People like that. Talk about uh, coin. Uh, coin? Well, you know, those uh, crypto coins. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about counterinsurgency games. No, no. no. Crypto, cryptocurrency. Are... Oh, God, you, you, no. You could talk about supermodel asses. Uh, if he wants to be popular, that's the way to do it. Don't talk about, uh, you know, things from 500 years ago. Or books from the twentieth century. That's passe. Yeah. Right. I mean, it really it is not. If you want to be popular, don't don't uh, talk about that stuff. You have to complain about like, about Marvel TV shows. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, uh, the other thing I was thinking would be a cool idea is to get some Zizek uh, sort of twitches and stuff like that and then do YouTube video of whatever you're talking about and people might think it's profound because Zizek's fun to watch and he's so yeah. meta self-referencing right um, you could you could become like a Zizek level star if you add some 
some twitches and whatever other ticks. I have my verbal ticks. Like what? Didn't I silence. mention some of the other days? Uh, silence. I, I, is the sounds of thing. silence. Um. Like second guessing myself while I'm talking. Mm. Well, no, that's actually a, a, that's not a tick. That's just a feature of you know not wanting to be wrong. Oh, thinking about Misa has sure right. passed Marissa for third place. Uh, yeah, Marissa's been sort of uh, out of the picture mostly, right? We haven't been doing that many PKDs. Although I did send her a photo of uh, uh, what was it? How to be a blowbell? No, if I yeah, was a blowbell. Blow, not, no, that's not. Bobble, but well, I'm just bell. assuming it's Blowbell. Um, but it's, that's not the title. Blowbell. Dick. Oh, wait. Evan's also now at 100. Oh, oh, to be a Blowbell. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a fun one. But yeah. the, the one I'd really like to do, if you haven't already done it yet, is mm-hmm. the, the Beaver one. <laughs> what, what's that one called? I don't have that one on my desk. Um. D- uh, find it. Dick Beaver. <laughs> this this will work when I type it into Google Images. Um, um, um I'll, I'll find K. it in a second. Philip K. It's one of his later ones. Yeah, I think I know the. I haven't read it. Oh, Cavalry the Beaver who lacked. Lacked. There we I go. think that was published posthumously. So Cadbury. I did do a few posthumous. Yeah, it was up to thirty-one. <laughs> not published until the till uh, till the collected short stories. It says uh, uh, Bob Cadbury, who suffers with an exploitive, nagging wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which, we can do that. Big story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's so easy to parody, right? <laughs> he's got some ticks, uh, some, <laughs> some intellectual ticks that he can't get off and. Out from under his skin. Oh my god. Yeah. Yep. That it, came out in eighty seven. Like that song that that uh, that pina colada song. Kind of like a if you like short story version of the pina colada song. Oh, well, and it's now the same it's Jesse sings the classics. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what the lyrics connecting <laughs> to Philip K. Dick's uh, the Beaver. It's about a. Uh, it's it's about the alienation of traditional marriage and how we seek to find. Freedom outside of it, but that's out. Uh, so that that's my interpretation of the Pina Colada song, right? Yeah, I and, 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 and they find each it. other in the end. They find each other as what they wanted in the end. Yeah. Here's the opening. Once long ago, before money had been invented, a certain male beaver named Cadbury lived with a, within a meager dam, which he had constructed with his own teeth and feet, earning right, his living by gnawing down, down, gnawing down shrubs, trees, and other growths in the exchange for poker chips of several colors. I love it. Yeah, it's a fun one. All right, Get let's Marissa schedule it. On it. Well, uh, She's hard to get. She's um, there may not be an audio version. Someone may have. Oh uh, no, the, there's gotta be. There's got. Wouldn't it have come up in the one of the collected collections? Yeah, but it may not be CD because of that. Cadbury. It was, it's in the fifth volume of the collected stories. Beaver. But it was first published then, so it was first published in the, the mid eighties. All uh, right. Audible. We can remember it for you wholesale. Might have it. 
It's, it's okay. in the eye of the Sybil. I don't know if they... No, it's in it. this one. Yep. It's in... Uh, oh. It says uh, Volume 5. All right. Do it. 18 hours, 24 minutes for the whole thing, and probably shorter for that. Let's see. doesn't say. Maybe 20 hey, minutes. My fan's making noises. My fan's <laughs> making noises? I love my fan, Mom. Her f- melon... Sh- my fan. Her melon-shaped breasts pulsed with apprehension. Um, <laughs> Somebody's... Um, oh, my God. Quotation <laughs> marks. Thank you, Trish. Uh, you say why I couldn't. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so I don't know if that's a quote or if it's... um. If it's a, uh, it's in quotes, but it sounds like something Philip K. Dick would write. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> sounds sadly, like making fun of him, yes. too. Sadly, yeah. yes. That sounds that's very not sadly, that's hilariously. Um, All right. That's, that's because you're a guy, Jesse. Uh, I don't know. I think women can laugh at stuff. They're laughing at stuff, and then there's abject sexism. I can do both. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Not. All right. Um, let's start, shall we? Why, why, right. well, yeah, why, why don't we start uh, disrupting the Galactic Empire? Okay. Uh, you know, I had it here a minute ago. Oh, there we go. Good well, the audio, uh, the e-text, it's called Ministry. It's, it's, on, it's on Gutenberg. Yeah, I just had the tab, and I've lost it. Oh, disturbance. It's got illustrations we can talk about. Yeah, there it is. All right. Um, I think we're ready. Jesse, Paul, Evan, Trish. Thank you. Trish, you unmuted? You ready? Yes, ready. Here we go.